right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the No Laying Up podcast, No Sunday Night Recap this week. We got a Ryder Cup special. It's it's Ryder Cup season in the No Laying Up household. And we, uh, shortly after the U.S. made their captain's picks on Wednesday, recorded this episode with Kyle Porter of CBS and Kevin Van Valkenburg of ESPN. There's been a few days since we've recorded it. Apologies if there's anything that's outdated uh, in that. Obviously, Billy Horschel won over in Europe. That may have changed a bit of our discussion if, you know, Brooks Kepka was not is not able to go. I did not think Bernd Wiesberger was going to end up making the team, and he did. Uh, we're going to have plenty of other preview stuff coming out. We'll have plenty of time to talk about the Euros and all the developments leading up to the Ryder Cup, including the fact the U.S. is already up there practicing, which I'm not going to lie. I kind of feel like Stricker has his ducks in a row, which we're going to talk about a little bit there. Uh, if you're looking to become an unofficial sponsor of Team USA or Team Europe, there are two limited edition versions of Quater's best-selling golf club. It's called Between the Lines. And you can choose where your loyalties lie. You can choose the USA with the red, white, and blue glove or go with Europe and Quater's Between the Lines gloves styled in blue and yellow. So whichever design you choose, golf gloves from Quater by Travis Matthew. Strategic seam construction helps eliminate shaft friction. It reduces distractions while a, there's a grip location reminder on the palm that keeps you uh, that, that assists in keeping things lined up properly. Uh, Quater's golf gloves are crafted from genuine cabaretta leather and feature engineered perforations for moisture reduction and breathability. Ability. Show your support of your favorite team, your favorite player, or even your favorite color with Team USA and Team Europe gloves. Again, from Quater, from Travis Matthews. So go to Quater.com, C-U-A-T-E-R.com to purchase your limited edition gloves. Use code NLU20 to get 20% off your first purchase. That's Quater.com. Use code NLU20 to get 20% off. Without any further delay, let's kick off the Ryder Cup preview festivities. It is a happy, happy day in the Solomon household. I can c confidently say that Steve Stricker has nailed it. He has done exactly what I would do. Welcoming in, of course, two of our favorite correspondents. First of all, from CBS Sports, Kyle Porter. Hello, Kyle. Yeah, I just want to know if, if you think Steve Stricker has thought more about the Ryder Cup than any of the three of us on here, because I, 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 do, not, <laughs> I do not think that he has over the last, over the last six months. It's probably not. I'm so happy to have you guys on instead of the other guys I'm usually talking to that are trying to downplay the importance of this event. I need the people that are going to get me amped for this event like you guys will. And from ESPN.com and ESPN the Magazine, Kevin Van Valkenburg, of course. Hello, KVV. Good morning, Sully and Voda. Um, <laughs> I have... I want to apologize up front for bullying my way onto this pod. Please uh, do not. You know, I, uh, I, I'm a little ashamed, but not really, so... No, Not at all. This is uh, something that Kyle and I were talking about after we did the pod a couple weeks ago after recapping the majors. We were like, all right, we got to do our own Ryder Cup one. And uh, I honestly didn't even think past making it bigger, but I, I appreciate you beating down the door. I love people that are ready to come on and share some takes. So uh, I'm sure you're just getting ready to say, you know, I just hope both teams play hard and have fun. That's what we're, that's what we're here to do. <laughs> both teams play hard. Both teams played hard. Uh, yeah, I'm a little worried that Steve Stricker just like went on to PGATour.com and looked at like driving distance uh, statistics and then just picked some dudes. Uh, but you know, maybe he's got a, a Google sheet, uh, at least a spreadsheet, to kind of you know well, did, did sort you, out some stats. Did you see his quote about it? About uh, I how did he, not. He has stats. He, it was very. It was kind of Billy Beanish. 
He's like, you know, I'm kind of old school, not really into the stats. And I was like, whoa, like, what? No, 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 no. Are we saying this? Is this this thing on? Is this public? (laughs) But he he did say, like, you know, I have that input from a bunch of different places, which felt like a, you know, a 15th club type thing. So, I don't know. We're already in the weeds and we're like, you know, two minutes. Oh, God, we're going to get we're getting so deep. It's not even funny. I, I've been pretty uh, not shy about being a little bit critical of, of Stricker to this point. I think there's a lot of elements of being a captain that we're going to talk about today that from outside looking in and not having inside information, I feel like he may potentially fall short on, but man, I thought he was impressive today. He's not going to blow you away with a big media presence. He's not going to wow you in the press conference. He's up against Podrick in that regard. That's he's never going to win that fight. I don't know. There's something to a very understated announcement. Here's my six picks. Maybe me also very much agreeing with those six picks and the very clear rationale for those six picks that has me very encouraged, uh, you know, talking about him using statistics and, and analytics. And, you know, for the people out there that always say, like, we always use analytics and we always lose. It's like, no, we always lose because we don't use analytics. <laughs> and Europe does use analytics, all right? There's an issue there. This is a golf course that the course fit is important and it cannot be ignored. So for everyone shouting for Na and Kisner and all that, like, I cannot imagine that any of those were actual serious considerations for this team. And the U.S. has a ton of talent, and they are captivating on that very specific talent field. The, the, the guys that hit it, further than average. That's a prerequisite to being a captain's pick on this team. And uh, I don't know. I thought he nailed it. it. Of course, they could go out and go 2-10 and 10 like they did in France when I thought they nailed those picks too. But uh, I don't know. What are you guys' thoughts on the captain's picks? Kate Porter first. Well, I, I thought it was... I thought it mattered that they took Scheffler. Honestly, like it, it, it's a simple, and you guys know how I love Webb. Like you guys know how I feel about Webb. But I, it, it seemed like the Webb pick would have been something that they did in 2004 or 2006 or 2008. And Scheffler is not, I, I, think, I think to us, we're like, oh yeah, Scheffler, that makes sense. But to the broader public, like to, to, to people, to like, my I always use my dad, right? Like to my dad, it's like, well, wait, she- Scheffler's never won, and I think that I think the broader public takes that stuff into account. But but Stricker was like, no, I'm I'm actually going to go with with six rookies, and not only am I doing that, I'm doing it because they're rookies, because they're young guys, and I thought that was actually. It seems like a small thing because it seems obvious to us. I thought that was actually a really meaningful thing uh that that he uh not only that he did but that he kind of talked about purposefully doing so that that was kind of the main thing that stuck out to me on on Wednesday and just to clarify um 2004 what they would have done and what they did do actually is took a 51 year old Jay Haas <laughs> so we 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 have come a long ways in terms of the talent pools that are available and if I'm being honest like that what they've done in recent years, I feel like they've like 90% of the time gotten the picks right. It, it, the, the picks have made sense when they did it. I know 2014 was a mess with Horschel going on that crazy run after they'd already made the picks, but on the day they made the picks, it mostly made sense. Webb didn't really make sense. And, uh, it, you know, the way that played out was a you know, weird thing with Haas basically already knowing that he was going to be a pick and then Webb got the pick. And that was just a mess. Like that Tom Watson year, I think, did change things. Ryan Moore was not a great course fit you know, for 2016, but he beat down the door. They held a pick back for like, hey, whoever beats down the door coming out of the tour championship, like we're going to ride with that and roll right into it. And he had a, he had a fine Ryder Cup, but uh, 2018, Finau, 
Bryson, Phil, and Tiger. Like Bryson won two playoff events. Tiger won the Tour Championship. Phil was coming off a strong 2016. Finau was the most questionable pick considering the course and the setup, and he was the only one that put any points on the board. So at a certain point, it does come down to you know players playing well, and I do want to unpack that a little bit. But as I, as I should shut up and stop rambling here, uh, KVV, what are your thoughts on the picks? Uh, dramatic improvement from when they were like drawing names up on napkins in between matches with Tom Watson. I think that should go without saying, but, um, I don't know. I can't really take any beef with it. I, I love Sam Burns and think he fills up any kind of, uh, scorecard with a shit ton of birdies. And so it would have been nice if there was a spot for him. Like if Brooks Koepka Kim couldn't play, I would definitely, uh, not then go to, like Kevin Na or Kevin Kisner, one of the Kevins. Shout out Kevins, but uh, I would, <laughs> I would reach down and and pick up a Sam. Uh, I don't know if they'll have the guts to do that if if something's going on with Brooks. But there's like five things in a row that have to go right for you to put together a good a winning Ryder Cup team, right? And the the first one is. I don't know if it's the most important, to be honest. I think it's probably like like actually making putts and like scoring in the actual Ryder Cup is the most important. But like second or third most important would be like picking a team that you can win with. And so I think we've gotten that right so far. Stricker has picked a team that they can win with. Now, will he set up the course the way that will be their advantage? Will he put out pairings that are to their advantage? I don't know, but I think he got the first part right. So not to, you know... This hopefully isn't an affront to all Kevins everywhere, but the Kevin Na and Kevin Kisner stuff was like, what, what are we talking about here? Like, we're, we're, <laughs> like da- da- Daniel Berger is the person that you're describing, only like a better version of like who you think Kevin Na and Kevin Kisner are. Like, we already have that like doesn't care who like who the other guy is will go after people i mean uh rick gaiman who i do uh the first cut podcast with he was talking about how he loved that burger was gonna be on the team because he was the guy that uh remember he ran over i think it was at harbor town when reed was uh like dropping his ball yeah and he ran across <laughs> the like the whole deal and, and was like watching him he's like that's the guy that i want getting in Europe's ass, you know, like that, that is the guy that everybody thinks that Kevin Kisner and Kevin Na are. Berger's actually that guy, but he's actually good from T to green. So the, the right. Na and Kisner stuff did not resonate with me because we, you, you already had that guy. So I don't know that, that I wanted to throw that in about, about uh, the Kevins. The first time that like they, you know, walked their way backwards into like Kevin Kisner and Kevin Na against like John Rahm and Rory McIlroy, and where those guys were hitting four irons into greens, where like Rahm and Rory had pitching wedge. I think that the, the whole like he's a bulldog thing would have come apart real quick. Yeah, but he's a match play player, and uh, yeah, it was it was kind of a, a whatever. It's so it's amazing to me. I like when I read so much drivel online. I like start to like quit, like test my own sanity. Like, am I the insane one here? Like, are they actually going to pick Phil? Has big Randy gotten through to me on, <laughs> on this like insane? I like it's, it was an idea that was so like outside the realm of what I thought was even possible that I like had me questioning like my whole entire existence of what, of, <laughs> I kind of think that if Phil had not sort of stepped back and said like, Hey, I don't, I don't think I've done enough to deserve it. Phil had been like super politicky, like, in the public and behind the scenes, I think it would have been a lot harder because all the like legions of Phil people and the people in the PGA of America who love Phil would have said, you know, like we got to have this veteran leadership on the team. Like this guy's important. 
So to Phil's credit, and I use that phrase cautiously, uh, <laughs> he did a good job of realizing that his game was not in a, in a place where he was going to help this team. I will say, though, I, I would have kind of agreed with you, honestly, up until today. And maybe I'm overreacting to, to Stricker's press conference today, but like Stricker felt in control. And it felt like somebody was trying to win, which sounds ridiculous. Like, of course, the captain's trying to win. But I think U.S. captains in the past have fell victim to trying to please everyone involved and taking too much information in and not having somebody where the buck stops, you know, with them to decide it, right? Like, does that, would that, you know, if Phil had campaigned and they didn't take him, does that affect Phil and Strick's relationship, which probably goes back many, many, many years. I don't know how good of friends they are and whatnot, but Phil could have put him in a tough spot. And, but I still think that Strick, like, the way he's talking about setting up the golf course and, again, just with who he picked, like, it all, it makes sense. I have a ton more faith after today, not only with the picks, but just also the whole the whole vibe that Stricker's putting out has given me reason to believe. It's also easy to feel in control when you're having to call like Jason Kokrak and Reed, who yeah. none, none of the team wants, and like Webb, who's the nicest guy ever. And it's, it's different when Phil walks in the room. I think to KVV's point, it's harder, it's harder to feel in control when it's Phil. Right. And so I thought, I, I mean, I, and I don't know like how it went down, but then making him a vice captain a couple of weeks ago, that was like, okay, that, that almost set the stage for what happened today with what you're saying of, of Stricker, you know, being, cause I agree with you. Like I walked away and I just, I read through his transcript again. It was, <laughs> I, I'm like all in, I'm ready. You know, every, every year I do this thing where I'm like, I don't know, I might, I might root for Europe, you know, Rory's great. I love Rom. <laughs> and then it, you know, I just, I watch the guys and I want, I kind of want to get into this post Tiger and Phil era thing in a little bit, but I, I watch everybody today and you're like, man, this is, this is like actually kind of exciting. It's exciting that the average age is under 30. It's exciting that DJ is the only older guy. Like there, there's some, there's a real sense of like, you know, Stricker's not new, but, but the, it's, it's a kind of a, like a turnover of, it, it, it feels like a newer era. Like it feels like a turnover of everything from the past. And listen, Europe might go out and win 18 to 10. I, I, I have no idea. But that's the feeling that I got that I haven't really gotten in the past because Phil and Tiger have been on the team for the last 30 years. You know, and, and so that to me engendered a ton of excitement as I watched on Wednesday. Can we just point out real quick that in the history of the Ryder Cup now that two different people have had to apologize to Patrick Reed for him sort of stinking. Like Stricker <laughs> apologized repeatedly to Patrick for not picking him. And apparently Tiger apologized to, to Patrick Reed for not carrying him when he shot 85. So uh, I, 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 I don't your... understand the apology. What, what, what was Stricker apologizing for? Like you're the no, captain, yeah. not him. Yeah. <laughs> I'm the captain. now. <laughs> Real quick to your point, Porter, the, the, these guys were on the 2018 team, and how long ago does this feel like for some yeah. of these names? Bubba Watson, Ricky Fowler, Webb. I think the Webb case would make a lot of sense in another, a lot of places that aren't whistling straights. Yeah. Uh, but then Phil Mickelson, Tiger Woods, and who else am I missing there? Did I say and Patrick Reed? Like Those guys were on the 18 team that are not on this one. That's the six new six new names. And, and, maybe, and maybe this is a, a question we can say for later. It's like, hey, if this was a more neutral golf course, who would the, who would the picks be, right? Because I think some of my picks might have changed. Like, I, I think there would have been room on the team for somebody. No, nah, like, you could talk me into that on a more neutral golf course, like if we want some variety and whatnot. But I think they have 
no secrets on how they're going to set it up. And we can talk about some of that and how, you know, that maybe is not the best way to run a Ryder Cup for the competition standpoint, probably what they're going to do to it. But I, I think it honestly now, like they've collected a ton of talent. And I think, you know, the case has long been U.S. can keep stacking the best players. Europe will keep fielding the best team. And I honestly think I've kind of struggled to understand that until this past week at the Solheim Cup. Like watching and like embedding with almost both teams at times and really actually understanding what is meant by that. I feel like I've been delivered cliches on this for years and years and years and they just play with more passion and I want guys that are into it and are going to fist pump and all that. And it, it's so much more than that, but it's also extremely, extremely real. So I, I have a question for you on this, because I was thinking about your experience at the Solheim Cup and watching it. And I agree with you because I, I, I've always been like, OK, they care more. Well, what the hell does that mean? Does that like mean? that that yeah. that's not like a real uh, that that like in my, and the question I wrote down was how does being like how does having a better team translate to hitting a four iron closer from 230 yards like that. That's yeah. the part yeah. that I like, how does, how does this sort of intangible thing translate to better golf from worse players during an event? And I'm curious about wh how you would frame that having just gotten back from the Solheim. And I honestly think I totally get it now. Like I, I could not answer that before the Solheim. And I truly think I'm about to just blow your freaking minds right now. All right. So there is a, there's not an element of like caring more or wanting it more, but it is the route in which the, and I know this is not the same system like Solheim and Ryder cup are not the same, you know, ecosystems and it's two totally separate things, but the American players want it. They want it badly, but I feel like they want it individually. They are yeah. not willing to buy into this team thing. They're not willing to like, sacrifice themselves to be big, a bigger than, you know, whatever they can contribute on the golf course, right? I think Europeans have no problem. And I, I always go back to the Paul McGinley podcast where he talked about like sitting Graham McDowell down and telling him you're going to play with this guy in these matches. And I, I don't feel like the U.S. ever has the either the captain that's willing to do that or the players that are willing to say, hey, I'm going to fill this specific role on this team. And when I'm not playing, I'm going to be out there supporting my teammates because Listen, of course, does that like matter when it comes down to the four iron going closer? But what have we said every year after one of these things? The U.S. has talent. They just don't play well in them. So I feel like when it comes down to it, the American players are putting so much pressure on themselves and not getting a true support from a team aspect that it is causing their golf to decline during the event. Whereas the Europeans are so bought into this team thing and just watching the European women players support each other, go be out on the golf course, the way their conversations were going after matches, during matches and things like that. They are so bought into this team thing that they, their play is actually elevated by having this ecosystem around them. And when the American players, when it starts going wrong, it just starts doubling down because they've put, they're not having fun with it. They're not there to be as a team. They don't celebrate as a team. Like I watched the, the European women on the 18th green, jumping up and down, singing, ole, ole, ole. What's the one, what's the huge takeaway we had after the 2016 Ryder cup, how muted that celebration was. There was, was no like team. Yeah. It, it was, was weird, Rory, right? It was Rory saying, do you guys not remember how to celebrate? Do you remember that on, exactly. on, uh, yes. 
on 18 on Sunday. He was like, you th he said something like, you idiots would think that you would be celebrating after not having won in, you know, yeah. eight years or whatever. But that, that team was so good talent-wise that they were just, as a group of individuals, beat them. They were just more talented and couldn't be overcome. I, a lot of, I think a lot of it has to do with that first session. The U.S. won the first session 4-0. And it, it's always – like, I watched that happen with the U.S. women's Solheim team. Like, they lost that first session, and the whole – almost immediately, things started getting torn apart. Like, the tension was just, you know, the, maybe some doubting in the captaincy, the leadership aspect, and there was just no unity from that point on. Whereas, when, when the Americans are running downhill, they're happy, they're joyous, they're going to have fun, they're going to be running around screaming and everything, but they don't have that ability to, like, band together and – like, no one has felt willing to sacrifice themselves for the greater good of the team. And I, I still don't know if I'm explaining that that well, but it was so apparent watching the celebration afterward in that team room. We're like, so a couple of the European players were just like extrovert, or sorry, were just like introverts and like not in on the big drinking scene and didn't want to drink out of the Solheim Cup and sing We Are the Champions on repeat. And like, one by one, like, random players... But random players, <laughs> random players went up to like, and I don't want to name the names. I don't want to tell too much, but like pulled them off the table and like, come on, you got to come do it. And they would reluctantly like laugh, kind of like the Payne Stewart Tiger story from '99. And they would reluctantly celebrate and all that. It was just, I felt it. It was very real. And I, I for the first time, it just started to make sense to me. Like their willingness to be as a, like both win and lose as a team. Like they, they, they are more joyous when they lose because you're like, you know what? We, we, we try to do this all together. And I, I know that little intangible factor of like what makes them play just a little above their talent level and us play a little below their talent level has never been more clear to me. I don't know if that ex was explained well, but KVV, what do you got? I think that there's a flip side of that too. I, I totally agree with that. It's, it's not just support, but it's the willingness to sort of point fingers when shit goes bad. Yes. So like there's nothing really and i think you guys have said this over and over and over again that feels like Ryder cup pressure like you can call it a cliche but like normal like majors when guys fuck it up they don't walk into the ocean and think about like ending it and you know <laughs> they don't unpack their suitcase for eight years when they blow you know all of these things like Ryder cup has has shown over and over again to put this pressure on people so if when things go badly on the u.s side they have heavy shoulders. Like, they kind of like, ugh, you know, like there's so-and-so's effing it up again, whether it's the captain or whether it's other players. I mean, you know, we're dating back all the way to 99 when, you know, there was a divide on the team of that, you know, Omira and Duvall and Tiger and Phil wanted to get paid for appearing in this stuff because they felt like all of this money is going straight to the PGA of America. None of it's going to, like, anywhere else. And... And, you know, some of the other guys were, the older guard was really pissed. And so it was like, right there is a sort of, in this era of Ryder Cup stuff, is a, is a first, like, big fracture of, like, these guys aren't really on the same, like, philosophical side of things. And so, man, when you blow a match and you think, like, are my teammates, like, kind of, you know, down on me right now? They feel like I've let them down? I think that's a real, real thing that they have to kind of weigh. It's another thing that they have to kind of deal with. I don't think that happens in Europe. I think they all, they're way better about being supportive in losses uh, that happen throughout the Cup than they are, you know, not just being supportive during wins. Week one may be over, but the season's just getting started at the DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. To kick off week two, DraftKings is giving new customers $200 in free bets instantly when they bet $1 
on any football game. So head to the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Place a bet of $1 on any Week 2 game. You'll receive $200 in free bets instantly. And if the Sportsbook is not available in your state, DraftKings still has huge cash prizes up for grabs all season long with their daily fantasy contest. DraftKings is giving all new customers a free shot at millions of dollars in total prizes with their first deposit. So download the top-rated DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use promo code NLU to receive $200 in free bets when you place a $1 bet on any football game. That's promo code NLU this week at the DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. Must be 21 or older, New Jersey, Indiana, or Pennsylvania only. New customers only. Minimum $5 deposit, $1 wager required, one per customer. Restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com slash sportsbook for details. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or in Indiana, 1-800-9-WITH-IT. Let's get back to the pod. So I think what, what both of you guys are saying, and I think especially what Sully is saying, I, th- I think it comes down to, to trust, like to trusting one another. I think that the Euros, and this is probably cultural and I don't even mean like cultural as in like country you're from, but cultural within your team is that week they, and I, I go, but Reed said this to Karen Kraus actually in that New York times article, they leave their egos at the door. Well, what that means, what that actually means is that they enter that room and they just completely trust one another and they trust the captain. And I think that, I think that what, what's the biggest variable here, even KVV got at it there when, when you're talking about a Ryder Cup week, is mentally where are you at? Because mentally you can, I mean, it, it, it can swing like really wildly one way or the other. Physically, I, I think, I don't know, that stuff doesn't change a ton, but mentally, and it's in golf generally, but especially a Ryder Cup week, you can be all over the planet. And if you don't trust each other and... Tom Watson is like writing down uh, pairings on a napkin and handing them out at lunch. And uh, Reed is like stewing and JT's thinking, well, I got to freaking answer questions about this in three hours from now. Like there's so much mental clutter there when you don't trust one another that I think, I, I think that's the thing that I go back to of like, how does being a better team affect how you're hitting four irons from 220? It, it's mental. You're not thinking about other stuff. You're just thinking about hitting a four iron from 220. And so to me, that was kind of the answer that I arrived at. And I think what kind of what you're saying as well that you saw throughout the week, Solly. Well, and I think it also what, what impresses me is Europe feels very comfortable with the result either way, right? They're comfortable with it, whereas the U.S. is like living and dying whether or not, and, it, and I don't mean to say that they don't, that the U.S. Wants it, wants it too much or cares too much, but like, they're so focused on the result that their process in getting there might be a bit shaky. Whereas like the Europeans, when they lost in 2016, like they lost badly, like they were totally fine. Like they were taking selfies afterward. The team was still all together. And I think they were just like, you know what? We got beat this time. Like we did our best and we got beat. Whereas as soon as the U S loses, they're just mopey and they do the 2014 press conference, which I actually kind of agree with and whatnot. But Tying all this back in, like uh, just kind of accumulating all the things, the sound bites we've heard over the years and how it all kind of makes sense. I go back to the Hunter Mayhem podcast we did a couple months ago where he talked about how fun 2008 was and like the best team, like the best like Herb Brooks, I don't want the best players, I want the right ones thing that the U.S. has had in, in whatever the last 20, 25 years has been Paul Azinger at 2008. Like a lot of names on that team will kind of surprise you that Ben Curtis and Justin Leonard and Chad Campbell and, all, and Steve Stricker were like killing people that week and stuff like that. But it was kind of like the, the 
attitude he had towards like the the environment that Paul Azinger promoted was fun, and like that enables you to play good golf. Whereas the opposite being 2014 in Tom Watson, this authoritative figure that doesn't make you you're not having fun doing it. So when it it does slightly go bad, it's going to start getting worse. And I don't know. I'm starting to see it crystal clear as best as I ever have. And I've been I was like really talking myself into Europe after watching the Solheim, but I maybe it just has kind of. I'm not giving enough credit on the U.S. side uh, in terms of what they're doing on that team front. You know, I still wonder about like buying in from DJ and Brooks and Bryson and like getting them to just like sacrifice themselves to the team. And that may sound hyperbolic, but that's the vibe I got from. And, that, and looking back, that's the vibe I get from European teams. Like they are sacrificed and committed to the cause no matter what. So two things on this one. I think the turnover, and I, I don't want to Patrick Reed anybody here, but I think the turnover from Phil and Tiger being like the team lead to JT and Spieth being the team lead is, I think it's significant. Those guys, yeah. Phil and Tiger were always the biggest egos and the biggest personalities in the room. And that's not, that's just reality. Like I, that's not disparaging. That's not, I'm not, that's just, it's just what it is. And they come from a generation that didn't like buy into the whole Ryder Cup thing as much as the Euros in that generation did. And I think JT and Spieth have flipped that a little bit. I think I, I go back to JT had this interview, I think it was 2017 in Hawaii. And he was asked, would you rather win a major this year? Or would you, or I guess it was 2016. Would you rather win a major this year? Or would you rather win the Ryder Cup? He said, I'd rather win the Ryder Cup. And I don't know if he was telling the truth, but I believed him. And mm -hmm. the way he said it, and, and, and I think that I, I just, I think that when you don't have, and the U.S. is never going to have this big personality, heavy-handed captain, like coach, and when you don't have that, then you sort of start to take on the, the personalities and the characteristics of the, of the biggest egos and the biggest personalities in the room, and that's always been Tiger and Phil. I think that shift, again, like that's... Tiger and Phil, they don't need me to speak for them. Like their legacies are cemented. But I think that shift of like team, like these are the guys in the room that really matter from Tiger and Phil to JT and Spieth. And I don't know, those are probably the two is, is really meaningful. And I think it, I think, I think there's an opportunity this year for the U S to actually go out and have fun and, and be galvanized. And I think you saw a little bit of it on that zoom call where Berger's sitting at the woods, Jupiter, you know, piped in, but <laughs> in front of the wine rack laughing about Phil, uh, pouring champagne into Spieth's mouth. I, I just, I think I'm really, really excited to kind of see how that plays out as, as the week goes on. How would you have reacted if I had told you in 2016 that we would have a Ryder cup where Jordan Spieth was, was, the uh, you know, a killer and Patrick Reed was left on the outside after Spieth <laughs> carried after Reed carried Spieth around for three days. Reed's, uh, Reed's never won matches. a he's never won a team Ooh. match without Spieth. That's the best stat. That's <laughs> true. Yeah. But also another takeaway there from from Solheim was watching Mel Reed and Leona McGuire as a team, and it felt like it felt like watching Rory and Poulter, like Leona being Rory and Mel Reed being Poulter in terms of. How even if at four ball, I've always just been like, eh, you know, you're playing your own ball and, you know, it is what it is. But like actually seeing a team gel where Mel Reed had some holes where she was just out of. Right. But she had Leona McGuire there who was not out of any hole at any point. 
And then when she needed to, Mel Reed hit the shots and was able to play the role as hero and make the key birdies. And like watching that we dynamic weave in and out over 18 holes and how the two players complemented each other in four ball was also a huge takeaway. Because I've always just been like, eh, what does it really matter who you pair who with with in four ball? Like you're both playing your own ball. But I still don't know the answer to how those pairings work out. But if I I'm starting to feel like we're closer, this team might be closer to getting that kind of thing figured out, which matters. It really does matter. I don't know if that leads us to a pairing conversations or not. You know what I was thinking about today, though, and it, it actually jarred my memory when you talked about the Sloan Cup in the opening session. Is that the Americans actually went three and one opening session in Paris? Remember that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's almost completely forgotten. I remember walking around. You and I were there, Sally, and, and walking around and thinking, "Wow, like they've got it. They've got it figured out. Like the Alan Shipnuck thing was right." Furyk had great sort of opening session here. The U.S. is going to just come out and just keep stomping them at the ass. This is this is going to be so much fun. And it just, what, they win like seven points the rest of the way? Like, it was just that, it completely flipped. I think the Euros went 4-0 the next, uh, in the they alternate did. shot, the no, next session. No hole got past the 16th hole either. It was just a disaster. And then I, I remember thinking like, wait, did like, you know, did Furyk get suckered into like, putting out like the wrong pairings first or should he start to try to even this? And then it was like, well, there's no way to really like reverse game that. Like I, it seemed like a great idea this morning and then they just completely, we just stink an alternate shot. Like there's really no way to (laughs) say it other than that. On on opposing soil though, like the last two home Ryder cups. And I would, I I haven't looked this up back. If you go back to 08 foursomes, I would imagine the U S has actually dominated a little bit. Um, It's been the road ones, 2014 and 2018, foursomes were a, a pretty much a disaster and i look at the the afternoon foursomes day one do i think they, they totally pants fierk on the pairings well he sent out phil and bryson together yeah. in uh yeah. at, at one of the <laughs> tightest golf course and bubba and webb went out uh in that afternoon as well so it, it was like kind of a a chess move situation right it, it seemed like yeah they they threw out four balls for for a reason uh, in the morning and then just dominated from foursomes on but if i go back to 2016 i think it was morning foursomes yes that the u.s went four and oh uh and then it was two and a half one and a half in foursomes on saturday morning in 2016 yeah i remember the uh the the sweep gifts that we were sending out on on yeah. thursday or on friday morning at uh, at hazeltine i just was r- r- laughing that they you know they sent fill out in the <laughs> afternoon in part because Phil's like rain session was so shitty. Like he couldn't, he had like the four way miss going on the range. And so they like needed, Furyk was going to give him a little bit more time to figure it out. And then, you know, it's like, if you just basically like kept Phil on the bench for the whole day, like that might've been a better uh, go around, but no. It's so hilarious, but also appropriate that Phil's last Ryder cup match was a concession on a tee box. On a Cause tee he box. hit a ball in the water. <laughs> I think the ball hadn't even landed yet either. I think it was like the tiger, the fake tiger video. (laughs) (laughs) You know what? I'm going to write. I've dunked on Phil a couple times here, so I want to stick up for him just briefly. Is Phil a good Ryder Cup player? No. Is Phil still arguably the best Ryder Cup player the U.S. has had in the last like 15 years or something overall? He is because like, yeah, he's qualified for a lot of them, but like, He's actually done fairly well in singles, and he's done fairly well in uh, four ball. So he's just had more opportunities to fail than some of the other guys. Like if you, yeah, if you take a smaller sample size of like, well, Keegan Bradley's a really good Ryder Cup player. Yeah, but he played in two of them as opposed to seven of them. So like Phil has, you know, he's been in the mix a lot of the times. He's had some bad losses, but he also was like really good after he was good at the very beginning of his career. 
Then he had kind of a real shit time. It was the 2004 was the absolute low point before Paris. But then he had a really good stretch. And then Paris was sort of the, the final capper of like the Phil, the entire Phil experience. Good, bad, shitty, happy, great. Big peaks and big valleys is what I, that's yeah. how I would describe Phil's Ryder Cup experience, right? Because 2016, like he was huge. Of, of his generation, you can't pick a guy who, who you can definitively say, like, that's, he's a better Ryder Cup player. Like, Jim Furyk was a bad Ryder Cup player. Like, just straight up bad. Like, he didn't even have the peaks that Phil did. He had one, I think, entire Ryder Cup where he had a winning record. Steve Stricker, pretty bad Ryder Cup player. It was a disaster in Medina. Like, they win Medina if Stricker gets one half point in any of those matches that he played. And I think he played five times because of Tiger. Four times. So, 0 and 4, yeah. Four times. Okay, so Zach Johnson, pretty, pretty poor Ryder Cup player. Like, of the guys of Phil's generation, like, David Duvall wasn't anything special. You know, Justin Leonard wasn't anything special. So, of, it's a kind of indicative of how bad the U.S. was in general in the Ryder Cup that Phil is seen as, like, being such a bad Ryder Cup player. And he's probably the best of the bad. I think we, we also, we just, we lose, it's so easy to lose sight. And we talked about this, I think, in our major recap pod, Solly. But I, I, Justin Leonard and Phil are, what, the same age? And Justin Leonard's been in the booth for, you know, three years. He's doing doing a great job with NBC and Golf Channel. And Phil's won the PGA this year. And you're like, <laughs> I, like it, it, it's just, it, I think we just lose sight of him making that many Ryder Cup teams and then the success that he's had for such a long period of time. And I think, listen, like, I think Phil has an opportunity, and I don't know if he'll do this or you know, go off the rails or whatever. But I think he has an opportunity to play a meaningful role in the next 10 Ryder Cups, 15 Ryder Cups for the U.S. as like the, you know, spokesperson, a hype man, like jabbing at the European team. Like he, he like if the captain doesn't want to do all the media stuff and chat, just roll Phil out there, maybe, maybe put him on a leash for a few years and don't let him get out over his skis like he, like he often does. But I think I, I'm really excited about that kind of post-playing stage of his Ryder Cup career. See, I'm, I'm terrified. Really I'm terrified that Phil is going to have the attitude of, you know, like we, we're either going to win or lose, and it's going to be either my, my credit or my fault, and he's way too comfortable with actually losing and having it be his fault <laughs> if he's still the center of attention. <laughs> But he's still like, yeah, put it all on me. It's on me. But like, hey, I don't want to do that. I want to win. Kyle's saying for the next 15 Ryder Cups that Phil could, that, you know, that's 30 years. So I, I'm loving the idea of a 71-year-old Phil. 81-year-old. Like, 81-year-old Phil dropping heat on like at the, you know, the 2051 Ryder Cup in Norway or wherever. <laughs> Maybe, yeah, I, maybe I got Sweden. Out, you know? I, I got out over my skis a little bit there. <laughs> I got, God saw I swooped in with the age correction there that I was, I couldn't even do the math of Phil's current age plus 30 years, but uh, it, yeah. It just, it, you know, I don't know if we need to actually address Phil, you know, not being on this team anymore than we already have, but it did blow my mind the amount of people that are willing to just take a guy's best week of the year and like have that, have that be an actual reason as to why they should or shouldn't be on the team. Like, it very much like these guys like Scotty Scheffler that are just consistently really good are what you're looking for in match play other than the guys that like Kisner wins at Sedgefield and then finishes dead last at the BMW like last those th those two things are not uh, separate from each other you cannot you, you can't just look at one of those two and and have that be a deciding factor for for who should be on the team but um, can we talk about pairings because honestly 
as we get going into the pairings, and I'm, I'm very thankful that it is not my job uh, when it comes, to, you know, when it comes to the U.S. side for figuring out how to pair these guys up because a a downside of having a team that's this good and deep, in my opinion, is I honestly don't know what to do with some of these guys, how to match them up. I, I would imagine these guys have a much better idea of that themselves. But I think Cantley and Xander seems to make a lot of sense. And I think JT and Spieth, obviously, I think you are planning to run them out for four matches as of now. And if they don't end up, if they're not playing well, be you know sure to fluctuate that out. But who uh, you know, Adam A. Brizzle asks, who do you pair with Bryson? That's been a, a popular question for a long time now. Like honestly, I have the same confusion as you know DJ. I'm not really sure what to do with him. I'm not sure what to do with Brooks. Any thoughts? Foursomes, four ball, anything you guys are leaning towards there, Kyle? Before we get into, I do want to talk about pairings, but I, I think Brooks is. Um... I'd like to talk about Brooks because we were texting about this the other day and I thought KVV had some interesting thoughts on him. And I, I don't, I don't really know what to make of Brooks. I think that he is somebody that I think everybody views this team and you've, you've kind of got, if you look at where some of the problem areas could come from of like a lack of unity, like we were just talking about reads out, right? He's not there. Apologies. And then, so you got Bryson and Brooks. And I think everybody looks at, at Bryson and is like, oh, well, he's the problem. I think Brooks is actually the problem or mm, could be listen. the problem. And I don't envision him going to whistling straights and being like, hey, whatever you guys need. You know, if you, exactly. if you, need, to, if you need to play me uh, twice and if, if I got to be with Berger or DJ, like wh what, whatever you want, you know. Brooks is, has f like people listen to him. He's got four majors. He 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 has the ability to to kind of step up and and be a real like leader and like, hey, this is how we do things, Scotty Shuffer. This is how this is what you should be doing, Harris English. And I I just I don't f I feel like he just does his own thing. And I, I and I think in general, all the Americans I wrote this down. I I think they all feel like. And there's good reason for this. They have a ton of confidence and it leads to winning majors. But I think they all feel like, hey, if you play me five times, that's the path to victory. That's how we're going to win. Like that, that's, that's how we win the Ryder Cup. And it's like, well, maybe, but that's not the only path, you know? And I, I think that just leads to such a divided group. And I think Brooks is probably like the, the king of that. And, and maybe not. Like I'm not in the team room. That is me projecting what I hear him say and what I kind of like see throughout these weeks. Which, can we talk about his health? I mean, is he going to be on this team? Uh, that, that's, a, that's a mystery, I think. And I think, honestly, what I'm scared of is like his refusal to sit out the amount of time that the doctors told him he needed to to recover from his knee injury this past year and playing, playing the Masters and looking like he was in the background of a Paul Pierce video when he was marking putts. Uh, <laughs> and, like, like, I think I 100% feel like his – like gonna be like try to do that at the Ryder Cup like gonna power through it and I'm this tough dude and I'm this is again projecting off base just him based on him withdrawing but that dude loves money and he withdrew out of the tour championship yep and, that's and the first thing I thought of money and yeah I I 100% would think of him as a guy that is gonna like really try to tough it out and then may also not have it but be very okay with like yep that's my bad. Blame me. We lost again. But I, you know, I, I thought I could do it. And um, I'm just, I'm not okay with that. I'm not down with that. I feel like I've sort of lost the plot when it comes to Brooks. Like, I don't know if his attitude is like exactly what the Ryder Cup could use or if he's just complete, like going to be a disaster. Like, I, I feel like I have a little bit of insight in this because when that report came out that Stricker basically asked him and Bryson to call a truce, I was at the BMW. And so I was like, well, 
I feel like I ought to go ask Brooks about this because like Brooks isn't clearly quoted in this article. And so if Brooks is like annoyed as hell that Stricker shared this information, like that could be a pretty interesting sort of aspect. Cause it would totally, I could see it being the thing where Brooks is like, well, I don't know why we got to talk about that. You know, th- that seems like a private conversation. So, you know, basically I'm going to blow up the whole thing. But I, so I went up to him and he kind of did his eye roll thing and where he like stares through you. Like he's, you know, annoyed in general that, uh, that you exist. Conversation with him. Yeah. But he was like, you know, yeah, that's true. Like, uh, it's pretty accurate. Um, I told, you know, Strick called me and said, you know, we don't want this. And so I said, all right, cool. We'll pause it. And he goes, he paused for a second. He goes, for one week. And I was like, oh, man, <laughs> like, that's that's such a Brooks thing. Like, I'm his stubbornness of like, I'm not going to let this go. Uh, but I'm just going to, I'm willing to, I guess, like, for the good of, you know, f- because I respect Stricker, I'm willing to not sort of torment this guy who's clearly tormented in a lot of ways. I think Bryson so badly would, like, if if there's a scene where the U.S., like, wins the Ryder Cup and Brooks happens to, like, walk by and puts his arm around Bryson and is like, hey, good job, man. I could see Bryson, like, breaking down in, like, happy tears, being like, I've wanted this this validation so badly for so long. And Brooks, you're right. I think he's almost, like, too cool to have any sort of care if it goes bad. Like, if they, if his, if his wrist, you know, kind of blows up, like, five minutes into the first match, he's just going to be like, meh, that's what happens, you know? Shit happens, you know? I can't, can't do anything about it. There'll be no attempt to, like, I wish I had sat out earlier. I wish I could have given my spot to somebody. He'll just be like, screw it, that's sports, bro. Like, yeah, peace out. And, you know, we'll just... <laughs> and I just, I don't know what to, I don't know what to think about that anymore. Like, he's, he views... You know, when I asked him about, do you think that some of this camaraderie stuff is is overblown? He was like, yeah, I do. Because, like, all you got to do is play good golf. Like, you know, in other sports, like, guys are getting in fights in the locker room and, you know, doing all kinds of shit. And they, you have to pull them apart after, like, you know, big brawls. And, you know, it's just... It's no big deal. I was like, okay. Underrated aspect of the last Ryder Cup was that he and Dustin Johnson ended up in a fight after the Ryder Cup, like an altercation <laughs> which they had to be separated, which I feel like we don't talk about. We talked about it a lot at the time, but have not talked about it a lot since then. I just, I, I think when I, when I look at him and Bryson, it's, I think Bryson is willing. I, I, maybe it's because he wants to be beloved, which I think is a pretty open, like, I don't think anybody who thinks rationally does not think that now. That's, that's his whole deal. I think Bryson will go to, to Whistling Straits. I actually think he would say, "Hey, whatever you guys need, like I'm, I'm, I, I just want to like be part of the team, you know." And and maybe in maybe that's in like a, I don't know if that's endearing. It, maybe that's a little in a, you know, I just I want to hang, I want to like spend time with you guys type way. And, and maybe that's a little pathetic or whatever you want to say about it. But I I think that he would be in on that. And I don't know that Brooks would. I think Brooks is. I think Brooks is a little bit of a problem for this team yeah. in the same way that, that I feel like that I feel like Patrick Reed would have been as well. I, I do not pick up on those Bryson vibes. I just I, I, I let you get through that sentence, but let me just interject myself and say here, like Bryson is truly, I think, one of the most like and when I say selfish, like he is just exists in his own world. If you can't tell by the things he says, like he has a very poor perception of reality of like you know, and it, it true kind of the world, this all this whole thing revolves around me that I'd struggled to picture him being like, yeah, whatever you guys need. I think like, I think Bryson is a problem with this team, but I'm in agreement also that like Brooks is probably the bigger problem. Like Brooks is the bigger personality in the room or has more chance of commanding the room in any way than, than Bryson does. And I can just, I can just totally sense like 
backhanded comments or like under the table comments or, you know, behind the captain's back comments coming from Brooks more so than Bryson. Bryson be dumb enough to say him in public probably. Whereas Brooks, I, I can just see him. I can get, I don't know. I can picture him undermining things. I, I, I think he, and I mean, look, looking back at it, he was number one player in the world in 2018, went one, two and one. He won two majors that year and just did, really didn't provide a whole lot for the team. And then Dustin Johnson going one and four in France was just, I mean, those are the, that's the backbreakers if you ask me. And it's going to go pretty smoothly, I think, for the U.S. if like their top guys just put points on the board. We're talking about like, you know, the European team, like trusting one another. And then we're talking about the U S team. Like, can they even be in the same room together? Like this guy, <laughs> exactly. this guy can't be in the room with this guy and this guy. Like, I, I just imagine if Brooks went to whistling straights and was like, Hey, you know what stricker? Like I've been here a bunch of times. I'm feeling good. Why don't I take burger? Why don't I take Scheffler? Why don't I take uh Cantlay? And we'll, we'll, we'll go like figure out the course, figure out some pairings together. Or is there another guy that you want in there instead of the, like, Man, that would be instead of what you're going to get, which is like eye rolling over not playing foursomes or, you know, just one off comments about Bryson that are not helpful during the week. It, it, it just I, I, I don't know. I, I, I hate to make him like the centerpiece of all of this, but I do think I, I think he can affect things one way or the other in a, in a big way. Sorry, I know you're a defender of the pod system, but I always just laugh now as the more I think about it, it's like. The idea that Americans have to like step back and like group their particular like-minded assholes together because <laughs> they can't all get together is like such an American thing. Like, Europeans would never have to pot up because they had certain groups that just couldn't stand each other. And so like Azinger solved the problem. Like we are what we are as a country and this is the kind of golfers we produce. So you got the pod system makes sense, but it just, it makes me laugh kind of a big picture sort of thing of like, oh yeah, these guys won't speak to these guys. So we just got to keep them apart. <laughs> I, I think it can work though. I mean, I think it can like almost like rally them. Like you're not going to let those, well, let's call asshole group number one. Uh, like the, you know, whoever's in that one, you could create almost a rivalry. I think it was, was it uh, Reed and Spieth that, that have talked about like when they play four ball, they're like, no, we're just trying to beat each other. Like that's the whole thing. It's like, I want to beat my teammate. That, that's our goal. And that's what drives us. I, I kind of could see the U.S. turning that into, you know, a, a benefit for them of like, no, our pod is going to whoop the shit out of this other pod over here because we hate those guys. <laughs> but isn't there, aren't there guys on the Euro side that don't like each other too? Like, didn't Sergio and, and Padraig have a thing or something? I'm sure there's plenty of that. I know there's, you know, some, there's been some weird Rory, Graham McDowell stuff in the past. And, you know, I, I but I go back to 2014 when it was like, you know, uh, what's his name? Uh, Paul McGinley was the captain and he, Lee Westwood had come out in support of Colin Montgomery becoming the, the captain and not McGinley. When it came down to a captain's pick, it was yeah. between Luke Donald and Lee Westwood and Luke Donald supported McGinley, but he didn't take Luke Donald. He picked the guy that he thought was the best for the team. He picked Lee Westwood. Like McGinley was willing to sacrifice a, you know, a, a previous beef or whatever that was for the concept of this team. And that's how it's going to play out. And so the Euros are not like best of, I wouldn't, I don't want, it probably gets painted a little too broadly that they're all such great friends and they all get along, but they do just like buy into the concept for this week. They play team golf uh, again, which I've rolled my eyes at for a, enough years that like it took, it just took a little bit different understanding of what that means to really fully appreciate exactly what that means. It's almost like a week of just like a, a safe space to trust one another. Like they, they almost view the Ryder cup as this like covering for like, yes. Hey, this week, we all trust each other. And, and you might not and, like this guy and whatever. Go ahead. 
I was just saying, and you got to like, honestly, you got to kind of be willing to just make yourself look stupid. Like you got to run off the green and jump into somebody else's arms after a made putt. Like you don't have to play it cool. Like act like an idiot, look like an idiot. You know, like it's not, I think these guys are so invested in like trying to keep up an image or look cool that like, it's not cool. It's not like cool to go out and, you know, walk the back nine of, of Dustin's match right now. But like those guys, the Europeans do that. They ride around the carts. They got earpieces in. They're trying to figure out what's going on in all the matches. I feel like that makes a difference when you got like four dudes out there, you know, you're one of the last matches out there and you got four dudes in the group, like invested in every putt and screaming and yelling. Like, I feel like that matters. I really do. And I want to see some of that out of the U S team. Cause we know we'll see it out of Europe. I think there's Maybe a Ricky should have been a European <laughs> rider. Seems like Rick was born to play this role. <laughs> Can we They'll trade him for Hovland? Him. They'll add him as like the eighth assistant captain at the last minute, surely, right? I think what Sally's describing is like a, and I've always thought this about the Euro side, and I think it's it's because they're whoever their leader was throughout has been willing to do this. Rory right now, like there's a vulnerability there that you don't see on the U.S. side. The U.S. is. Is, and maybe maybe that actually is cultural in terms of like what country you're from. I, I, I think the guys on the U.S. side, they're so unwilling to be vulnerable, whether that's talking to us, whether that's spending time with each other, whether that's on a team for a week. And the Ryder Cup, I think that what the Euros understand is that the Ryder Cup provides you with this like week-long covering of like, it's okay to be vulnerable here. It's not going to be used against you later on. It's not going to be leveraged against you three years from now. It's okay for this week. And I, I, I don't think the U.S. has fully understood that for the last 20 or 30 years. Can we get, do we have any intel on whether Rory's going to wear a hat this, this uh, Ryder Cup? Because the hatless Rory is a killer. It's scary. And I, I go back to, and I, I'm, I, you know, if I'm going too, back to too much Solheim stuff, I'm not going to apologize. But, like, we – we're hanging with the Europeans afterwards. Sophia Popov went 0-3. You would never, ever, ever be able to tell that she went 0-3 by that celebration. She was having yeah. so much fun in that team room, and, like, she was a part of the winning team. And, like, I talked to her about it, and I was like, honestly, I watched you play a lot, and, like, I did, you played better than, you know, to get zero points. And she's like, honestly, she was six down at the turn of her singles match. And she made it all the way to the 17th hole. She was like, I was having so much fun. Like, I knew the rest of the team was playing really well, and I was just having a total blast with it. And that's just kind of what we need to see uh, more out of the U.S. side. But I, I tried to kick off a pairings conversation, and I don't know sorry. if I got anywhere. I'm what sorry. do you do with Bryson? No, seriously. Like, if, if I'll bring this to the table. He ain't playing foursomes. There ain't no one I'm sharing a golf ball with if I'm Bryson. Play him in the two four-ball matches, whatever. But what do you, <laughs> what do you think about that, Kevin? Yeah, I agree. I also think I've I know that this sort of just slots Finau into like the babysitter role that Webb was playing, but I think I would pair Finau with with uh, Bryson. I, you know, maybe it's kind of unfair to just expect Tony to be because he's such a nice guy and he gets along pretty much with everyone. But you know, it kind of makes sense. Like Bryson's a really good putter. Sometimes Finau struggles with putting. They're both going to hit from you know similar distances. Uh, you know, they both mash the ball way down. You know, I, I think if you tried to pair. Like Dustin with Bryson, that you know, Bryson plays so slow and Dustin plays so fast that that could be kind of messy. But that's been the, the name that keeps popping up in my head is like, just put a Finau out there with him and see like if you can make it work because I, I think they're both going to just fill up a shit ton of birdies and have a lot of wedges in their hands. I think they played together at the uh, 19 Presidents Cup at Royal Melbourne. I don't know if they won, but I'm pretty sure they were paired together. My, I, so I wrote down all these. It, it, it gets. <laughs> Some of them are pretty easy. It gets difficult when you get down to the Bryson Brooks DJ stuff. 
I had him with Harris English. I like pairing. I, I don't care as much about the way your games fit together as much as how your personalities fit together. I want a, uh, I want a guy that has a ton of energy with a guy that doesn't really have it. Like I'm like a steadier guy. So I want like can't land burger together. And I'll get to that later on. But I, I, th- I think Bryson and Harris English, even though they shot a combined 85 on their back nine at, at uh, TPC Southwind, uh, I, I think they would be, I think they would be really interesting together. And I think, I think English would provide just a, a steadiness there that Bryson needs, uh, even though, even though English is technically the rookie there. Yeah, Finau and Bryson were paired together in the opening four-ball match and lost to the international team of Adam Scott and Ben On. The natural, you know, the pairing, the duo that is just really you, you never see those two guys it's lose tough. when they go up to when they're out yeah. together. But I didn't realize Bryson rode the pine for the remainder of the team sessions in twenty nineteen after that opening match. He did not play again he's, until singles. He's not that playable. I mean he he's yeah. it, you know it, that's it's so just, that's what I'm back at. That the the like Bryson is the specific guy that's like, Hey dude, here's the role you're gonna play. It's gonna be these yeah. matches, it's gonna be with this guy. We're not flexing you. Like, it's not up for, like, discussion. Like, if you play great, we're not putting you in foursomes. You're going to play the two four-ball matches. Go send your ball out there. There there may be no one on the U.S. side ever that's been more important for them to play their own ball. Like, just you should not be – whatever you would have to put your other playing partner through is not worth it. Like, this is what we're going to do with you. (laughs) Can you imagine Bryson, like, trying to talk to – like Bryson in a conversation with Spieth of like, well, have you calculated the air density, Michael? Like, do we need to see like uh, the wind patterns on a on an October day in this uh, that- in this area of the of the country? I don't know. I mean, I feel here's what I'll say gets back to what your thing is. Like Stenson in in uh, Paris, what do you? I think he played just alternate shot. Uh, he didn't play four ball, and I think he went three and zero. Oh. So like there there's a great like thing to sort of say like you know your role and if if Bryson can't play that role like hey you're only playing in four ball and then you're going to play singles uh then you know sorry I'm going to play you you know once or twice because if you if you can't accept that like there's just not, not going to be any foursomes for you this go around like then that's that's going to have to be it you had a pairing there Kyle that you t- was it Berger and Cantlay you wanted yes yeah, so I want Berger and Cantlay so it's probably going to end up being Cantlay and Xander because they played together at the President's Cup. But I, I think that I didn't realize until watching the Olympics or, or like uh, watching the uh, the press conferences how close Xander and Morikawa are. They're like like boys. Like of course I say that, and then uh, Cantlay's talking about how him and Xander are vacationing together in Napa this week. So <laughs> I think they're I think both pairs are really close. I just I didn't love the Xander Cantlay pairing at Melbourne because again t- it's two kind of like low energy guys at least on the course. Like there's just not a the, there's not a lot of excitement there, and I want to pair. At least personality-wise, I want to pair a low-energy guy with a high-energy guy, and maybe that's the wrong way to do it. Maybe you need to. Maybe you need JT and Spieth together as just two, you know, lunatics out there running around. That that is fun as well. But I think Morikawa and Xander, and then Cantlay and Berger would both be uh, would both be interesting. Morikawa is the one that too that I, I think pairs well with so many guys, but also I think is an enormous question mark going into these last couple yeah. weeks. I mean, his injury. Back injury from, you know, hasn't cost him time. I believe it was either before the Olympics or during the Olympics. He, sometime in that time frame, it was started dealing with a back injury. But uh, he has not been good since then. And I don't know if a couple weeks of rest or, you know, just what the doctor needs or doctor ordered there. But uh, he's a big curveball there, too. He may end up being one of the dudes that's like, here's what we're going to do with you. 
It's going to be this. I think he makes so much sense for foursomes. You know, a healthy Morikawa makes a lot of sense for foursomes. And I just don't – I think it's just a big question mark as to, you know, what kind of guy – what kind of guy is going to show up. And uh, it's amazing how, how different we're talking about him than we were back in July when he won the Open, of course. Eight majors. If not for, if not for Xander, uh, who would you pair – I should say this. If you pair Xander and Cantlay together, who would you want to see Morikawa with? Berger is kind of the thought that came to mind. I don't know. That's where I just don't know what the relationships is. There's so much new blood on this team, honestly, that, you know, we haven't talked about Scotty. Where does Scotty slot into this? Or who are the guys that are, is anyone going to play five matches? Are they going to, you know, do kind of the minimum two, maximum three matches as far as team play for everyone? I don't know. Like that, that's the only thing is like, you know, getting this group of similar players together, it's harder to kind of draw up how it all complements each other. In my opinion, I, just, I think you, I don't I've, have a great sense. of Yeah. I think you have to get five with JT and Spieth. I mean, that feels like a remember when Rory was struggling at, uh, I guess it was in Paris. He didn't play that well the first day or something. And uh, who was the, was Bjorn the captain then? Mm-hmm. And he got interviewed, I think after day one and he's like, yeah, yeah, we're sending, we're sending Rory back out for every match. Like that's, that's what's <laughs> going to happen. Like that, that's the feeling that I have with, with JT and, and Spieth. Like, I, and maybe that, Unless they're just hor- horrific on the first right. day, I, I I think you have to just ride. I mean, those are your guys. Like the and you talk about how Spieth wasn't that great in the playoffs, and JT's not putting that well. Whatever, like those those are your guys. And if you want to switch from that, so be it. But I think that has to be the plan going in. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, you got two of the best iron players in golf, right? So they're gonna give yourself a shit ton of birdie chances. You might as well roll. Take your chances with that. That like that Justin Thomas can get hot and that Spieth can continue to putt like he putts, you know, maybe, maybe Spieth can read putts for JT and that'll make <laughs> a little bit of a difference or something. I don't know. I, think, I mean, it's easy. It's somewhat easy to forget. Like, you know, they won their morning four ball match. They they got smoked by Molinari and Fleetwood as did everyone in afternoon foursomes. And then they went out and beat Poulter and Rom and four balls on Saturday morning and then beat Poulter and Rory four and three in afternoon foursomes to like, give the team a chance going into it. And then, of course, JT went out and beat Rory in the opening match. Spieth continued his incredible record in, in singles, which is winless by getting thumped yep. by – can you name it without looking? Who who beat Spieth five and four in singles? I think it was uh, the, it the Thunder, Thunder Bear. Thunder Bear. Thunder Bear, You could give me 100 guesses, and I would not have <laughs> – I don't even remember him being on that team. I would just like to use this opportunity to point out that that 16 team could have taken Justin Thomas as like a rookie mm-hmm. and instead took Ryan Moore – who what if you could find Ryan Moore on the like Ryder Cup's rankings list? You'd have to scroll like six pages, like six full like, scrolls on your <laughs> He's web browser. Tiger. <laughs> so like that's that's part of the thing. I you know like we talk about this sometimes in our chat that like I feel like the last spot or two on the Ryder Cup team should always be used in some ways. Like you set your playoff roster in like Major League Baseball is like hey let's bring up some of the, like the young future stars to sort of because you know what. The difference between them, if, if they're like look like they're going to be an all-time like you know generational type player, and the freaking veteran who happens to catch a heater at the end of the season, just isn't that great to me. So like if we could build in the larger context, like Europe always, whether it was Thomas Peters or with some of those guys, like they'll have a younger guy who maybe they pan out, maybe they don't, but they get a taste of the Ryder Cup action, and it's like all right, like this is going to be hugely beneficial for the next Ryder Cup. What if this what? was JT's? third Ryder Cup instead of, you know, like, like Speeds is Beats fourth. Yeah. I think that they should continue to have six captain's picks 
And the reason I think that is because you always, whenever you have a cutoff, you're, you always are, you steer toward picking the guys that just missed that cutoff, right? Cause you're like, Oh, they almost made it. I got to take those guys. And when there's six of them, it gives you more freedom at the bottom to do what KVV just said. So yeah. you, 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 when you look at the top six, you're like, well, I got to take the next three guys cause they almost made it or the next four or whatever. But then at the bottom, you're like, well, they weren't really that close to making it. I can, I can take a Scotty Scheffler. I can take a whoever, and I think they should leave it at, at six going forward because it allows you to, to kind of have some more movement than maybe you would normally have. It allows you to build your team. Like, you don't want to get stuck with – if they do, like, the European system, like, it's going to probably end up working out for them, but they almost kind of got stuck with Victor Perez or Bernd Wiesberger in that ninth spot, which, like, I don't think would be, would be picks. Like, you're going to end up – the more automatic qualifiers you have, the more likely you are to have a player on your team that you don't want to take to a particular golf course which like is not what a captain wants. Like it hamstrings you on, you know, what you can do with pairings and and any of, and all of that stuff and I think, you know, I, I think I made I got roasted at the time and it still may have been a bad take, but I said the US team should have taken Speeth to Royal Melbourne in 2019. I, I thought it would like he's I said he's going to be a huge part of US teams for years to come. Obviously his game is nowhere, you know, near where it needs to be, but the U.S. team famously took Tiger in 2011 to Royal Melbourne, and it ignited something in him, and he played great that week. And I think it would have been interesting to see, you know, to throw a JT Spieth pairing out there at Royal Melbourne to get them even more experience playing with each other. I was a, I was 100% on board with that take, and I got equally roasted by all these people who said, like, oh, you know, that's ridiculous. Like, he hasn't – he's terrible. He hasn't earned it. Like, if you believe that he was going to come back in some level – Plus, in two, if you looked at like what the player that Spieth was during that, it wasn't like he wasn't making birdies. Right. It wasn't like, you know, he was completely lost. He couldn't avoid playing, you know, throwing up doubles on the board, which in match play often doesn't freaking yeah. matter. Like, oh yeah, it, would you want a guy who shoots seventy four but like makes eleven birdies? Yeah, that's a pretty good match player. Just because he has some blow-up holes doesn't really make a lot of difference if you pair him with someone steady. So Spieth 100% should have been on that team. I still, you know, walking off the course in the Solheim, I feel like I got a appreciation for the, I mean, I obviously know the obvious distance differences between stroke play and match play, but an appreciation for like, oh yeah, like Nelly Korda uh, is like clearly a better stroke play player than Leona Maguire, but she, it does not feel like she has any advantage over her on a hole-by-hole -hole basis in match play. And I, I struggle to marry the two things. Like I can't tell you exactly what makes a great match play player versus a great stroke play player. But it is weird just getting that real feeling on the ground of like, gosh, it, everything on paper says that you should be the better player, but you're not right now. And I, I would rather have the underdog player in this situation. It, just on a more emphasis on a shot-by-shot -shot basis than it is the you know, accumulation of a score over 72 holes is interesting it's a it's an element of this competition of course i just don't know how you identify those like those people in advance right because i think those are the kind of things that materialize within the week that are just i mean you sense it every Ryder cup right you see as soon as you saw you know keegan and phil at medina it was like oh my god like is keegan bradley the best player we have on the u.s side is he the best stroke play player is he anywhere up there in strokes gained or any of that. Like he's probably solid, but not the best, but he has to keep going out. Like keep sending him out as often as you can. Like Reed has been one of those guys in the past up until 28, 18 and all that. And I think it's just like really identifying who those guys are going to be, who your horses are. I doubt going into the week, Leona McGuire was going to like viewed as like, you are definitely playing all five matches, but she just materialized over the course of that week. And whoever, whichever team gets more of those guys together that week of is like usually the winner.
Is that not an argument against Scotty Scheffler, though? Against Daniel Berger? Like, is it, it could like, be. Those could be. Those dudes could be that dude, though. Like, Berger comes out and throws yeah. up a bunch of birdies. You know what I mean? Like, it might be. All right, we're riding that horse. You know, we, you know the the Europeans were expecting it to be JT and Spieth, but like Berger comes out absolutely blazing, and you just keep throwing him out there. Like, it just feels like. I honestly feel like it's just going to be hard to sit four guys in each session on the U.S. side. I think the the pairings are – there are almost too many possibilities. Europe pairings really line up really well, I think. I think their decisions are more simple than they are on the U.S. side. But isn't, isn't what you just described like a, like a more of a mentality thing than anything else? Because, like, with Nelly, Nelly knows that when she's playing the U.S. Open, hey, I've got 72 holes, and I have more talent than anybody in the world. And on the 72nd hole – that talent will have emerged and I will have won. Like mentally, that's what, you know, if you're in like a right mindset, that's what you're thinking. But when you have 18 holes or 15 or whatever, it, it like compresses all of that. So is it, is it as simple as just like mentally you're like, I have to win this hole and the ability to kind of rise to that occasion and do it. Is that what, is that what you're saying with the difference between, between her and Leona McGuire? I think so. And, and again, it's just, it's not like, it's not like an easy thing that's, that's easy to predict. Right. I mean, no one, almost no one, at least no one on the U S side is like, has been great in every Ryder cup or shitty in everyone, except for maybe Jim Furyk. But, uh, like there's always like, you know, everyone kind of goes, has their ups and downs. Right. I mean, you know, Keegan has been great in the Ryder cup and he was very, I don't know if maybe if I'm not remembering right. I think he was just okay in 2014. Right. And he was like our guy in 2012. So I think it is just like finding that guy or having that guy emerge and identifying it and riding the hot hand seems super critical to these ones that are going to come down to. But this is where I go back to Whistling Straits, though, of like, man, do I see like Poulter being able to keep up with like a Dustin Johnson in on this golf course in this format? Like, I don't. I I candidly don't just with this setup. Do I think in France? That DJ has a chance against Poulter? No, I don't. And I, I that's where I keep falling back on this course fit thing of like, look, is is it going to set up great for Rom? Of course. Is it going to set up great for Rory? Of course. Like it's not like it's a twelve. The twelve best players are going to be on the American side, or the only bombers are on the American side. I just think it truly is a huge, huge advantage to have this this mini this depth of long hitters, especially when we get to singles, especially on Sunday singles where. Uh, the U.S. team in, in, I would say, 75% of the matches, however it shakes out, is going to have the longer player. I think that's going to be huge. Well, and I, th- I think that's, um, that's where, and I'm sure you guys have talked about this before, but you need a third party to set up the course because you don't want yeah. this, oh, well, your U.S. US is definitely going to win this year, then Europe's definitely going to win the next time around. I think the other thing is, like, man, there has been a lot of consternation primarily from me and Solly, over essentially three putts by Ian Poulter on a Saturday afternoon at Medina. Because otherwise, it's three in a row for the U.S., three in a row for Europe, and it kind of is what it is. But (laughs) there have been literally uh, committees made over – basically three Ian Poulter putts on Saturday at Medina. (laughs) Oh, don't even get me started on the actual Sunday singles either, like the Justin Rose putt. And Stricker bog- or Furyk bogeying the last two holes. Stricker bogeying the last two holes. Well, however that played out, the unlikelihood of that comeback is will make you. My, <laughs> most of my gray hair that you guys see in here comes from the Sunday singles at, at Medina. Sorry, KVP, what were you going to say? I will say it's like, to your point about match play is different. And I, the one thing I would sort of give pause is, and I, I think we saw some of this play out in that uh, Lena McGuire, Nelly Corda thing, is that if you're the shorter hitter, you always get to hit first. 
right? And so you always have to get to put pressure on the person who's further down the fairway than you, who's probably the better player considering the way the game is played. And that's the difference in a lot of ways between match play and stroke play is if you're playing stroke play and you hit it far and you're the person you're playing with hits a good shot, you're mostly like, like, Hey, hey, good shot. Like that was a good ball by you or whatever. Cause you don't care. Cause you're not thinking like, Oh, I got to best them on this hole. You're thinking like, all right, I got to make the best. But I think it gets in your head in a way that it doesn't in stroke play where boy, someone hits a, hits it to 10, 15 feet. Then you think like, God, I got to hit this inside them. Cause I got to, you know, I don't want to be like missing my putt and then giving them a chance to win the hole. And so I think that that's where, you know, U.S. has usually been pretty good in singles, so wouldn't overthink it too much. But if, like, Americans are up 10-6 going into Sunday, I will say that, like, there'll be a lot of matches that will feel like, okay, the pressure is on because, you know, all of a sudden, you know, Tyrell Hatton has just thrown it to six feet and, you know, Bryson has to freaking hit a good shot here and he's overthinking it and he's hit it to 25 feet and then all of a sudden... Like, you know, he's being a head case about it. So those are, I think that's a real thing in match play. So what you're saying, if I'm hearing clearly, KVV, is that stroke play is not a match play situation. <laughs> that is correct. Okay. Yes. Just wanted to clear that up. Just to clarify. Yeah, I think if we know, get, I, if, if we get, <laughs> if we get Bryson Terrell Hatton on Sunday, that's going to be like a psych case study at Harvard <laughs> in 15 years. I mean, that's going to be unbelievable. You guys know this, but the listeners don't, is that I'm, Stupidly getting married on Sunday of the Ryder Cup. So I don't know how I planned this. It's it's upsetting in a lot of ways. You know, bless my, my dear bride-to-be. But uh, it's upsetting because, you know, you guys can't be there. First of all, so it's a huge own goal in that sense. But I know that during the reception, I'm going to be, like, looking at my phone, like, texting you guys, like, asking how it's going. So, you know, I hope that you'll understand uh, that I'll, I'll need a little something <laughs> during the thing to keep me updated uh, as I plan out the rest of my life uh, in Ryder Cup engagement. Do you think that if you had to bet, who does Rory trash talk first between Solly and I on Friday? (laughs) Gosh, I'm going to say you, Kyle. I think that, uh, that he'll, he'll get around to Solly. He's already, I mean, literally during a Ryder Cup, he's already gone at Solly once. So he'll feel like he needs to make it fair. Uh, but yeah, in in case you're new to the show and have not heard that story, it was 2016 Ryder cup. Uh, I had been tweeting like incessantly. If you think I tweet about the Ryder cup a lot now, it was even worse back in 16, (laughs) but it was like, I got us. It was just before Brooks kept, it was a known quantity. And I said, Brooks and DJ got to get paired together. Got to pair them together. It's going to be awesome. Send it, pair them, pair them, pair them. And they didn't for the first three sessions. They finally did in the final session and they get paired up against Rory and Peters and Roy and Peters are three up through eight holes against the pairing that I wanted very, very, very badly. Again, I cannot emphasize enough how much I was tweeting about this. And Rory tees off on nine and comes up as I'm sitting on the bench near the tee box and just like nudges me in the shoulder, like pretty hard, like a pretty hard little elbow. And it's like, hey, you got your wish. And uh, like it took me like a, like a second or two to really realize what he was talking about. And I was like, oh, my God, he just stuffed me in a locker. And uh, I've been living the off be- that story. I turned, the, I turned this into my the, career because of that story. The be- yeah. The best part is Solly walking up to us and being like, I, I think the, the best player in the world just trash shot me during the Ryder Cup. <laughs> like just in a complete daze over what had just happened. Like not, not totally sure of it. And this was – right after he had 
you know, just sucked your soul out of your body by bowing on the 16th green at, yeah. at, uh, after you made Eagle on, on Thursday. So it was a, it was an eventful week for that sure. That was the most fun week I've ever had covering golf. And I don't know, nothing will ever beat that. Like it was just like the perfect confluence of events. And KVV, I know you got a few minutes here before you got to head out and we will, we will not be done talking once you got to sign off, but oh, we haven't no. gotten to anything <laughs> Europe, anything Europe you want to get off your chest uh, before, you know, before you got to leave. I know we're, we're going to get there eventually for, for 38 seconds at the end of the show. <laughs> so Kyle's point about Poulter's putts, you know, brought me back to, at what point, like, if we accept that, like, no player has, like, actual Ryder Cup magic, like, fairy dust, like, is this the Ryder Cup where Ian Poulter kind of starts to look pretty mortal? And, and so you, I know you're going to make the point that he's already kind of done that, so I've sort of pivoted back to you. Because I think a lot of people think that Ian Poulter is, like, this magic fairy who makes every putt of the Ryder Cups. And maybe that was true, like, when he was younger, but the last couple times have not been particularly uh, like that. You, you, you kind of stole my thunder there for like, KVV, what if I told you that Ian Poulter really hasn't been a positive Ryder Cupper, you know, since the 2012 one at Medina? He wasn't on the team in 2016. 2018, he did go 2-2, two and two, of course, but he was 0-1-2 at 2014 at Glen Eagles when everyone else was just racking up. The, everyone the not named Stephen Gallagher was racking up points for Europe. Um <laughs> I mean, we were, no one forgets what he did in 2012 and the years prior to that, and it was very much a thing. But we're talking nine years ago, the last time he was a Ryder Cup killer. And on a golf course that is not going to set up great for him, uh, this can, you, can, you can make this my famous last words. It's not something I'm, I'm overly fearful of going into this week. I'm fearful of I, yeah. a lot of other things on Europe, but it's not Poulter. But I, I think Europe, I, and I've said this for the last, I've been saying this for like six years now, I think they're going to get caught at some point between generations. Right, they, we were talking about we were talking about how Lee Westwood was was uh, like we couldn't believe he was playing in the Ryder Cup five years ago. Yeah, <laughs> and he's forty eight now. Yeah, like they're they're gonna get caught because they don't really. And this is where I'm glad the U.S. it feels like has shifted to that next generation of Ryder Cuppers. And Europe has not, and I, I, I just honestly like I feel like they might. This might be the year that they get caught. Now, again, famous last words. You can replay this to all of us on Twitter for the next two years if that doesn't happen. But I, I, I all those guys are in their forties, and it's just it's a, it's a taxing week. It, it, it's just I don't know. I, I that's kind of my feeling going into it. Westwood was zero and three in twenty sixteen, and to your point, the, Hovland is a, is an exception to what you're saying, but. Just to just to tie that in, I've been looking forward to seeing Victor Hovland in Ryder Cup for you know ever since he played that U.S. Amateur because like he is going to be a menace. I think. I mean, he, you know, the one thing that sometimes comes and goes with him is putting, and I think in match play, like you don't, you know, you don't always have to like putt great every hole. You can just kind of catch heater for a little while, and so I think, look, if if Rom and Rory and Hovland play great, then I think Europe has a chance and. You know, if they play poorly, then I don't think they have a chance. I think, and I think if like in the case of the U.S., like we could have a couple guys play poorly. Like Europe's studs have to play good for them to have a chance in on U.S. soil. And I think that the chances that like is John Rahm going to play pretty well in the Ryder Cup? Yeah, like John Rahm's played pretty well everywhere in the world for the last year and a half. Scary thing, if I'm an American fan, the uh, who who are the two best players you, in your opinion on, on Team Europe? Who, who would they be, Porter? Rom and Rory. How many points did the, those two earn in France when the U, when they beat the U.S. seventeen to eleven? Well, 
Rory didn't play that well. And I, I know Rom beat Tiger. I'll say like three. They got three total points. Rom was one and two, and Rory was two and three. So they played eight matches and got three points between the two of them, and they won by six points. So yeah. do, am I expecting that yeah. out of Rory and Rom? I'm not. I'm also not expecting 3-0 and Henrik Stenson, 5-0 and Francesco Molinari, 4-1 and Tommy Fleetwood. Uh, that's, that's where it was won, but – uh, Sergio was three and one, of course, too. But you, like, if Rom has a bad week, the Europeans have no chance. That I don't think that's that bold of a uh, of a take. Like, he has the ability to truly go out and win five matches, and I would that would not that would surprise me less than him having a bad week. Yeah, he he's not had very many bad weeks other than getting ejected from tournaments over the last <laughs> six months. <laughs> Which uh, honestly so, might be a guarantee that he won't be at this point. He's been ejected from so many. I don't think you can get COVID seventeen times. <laughs> <laughs> who <laughs> who are like Europe's uh, sort of picks? Like is, you know, Serge, I see where Harrington, Harrington said that Sergio and um, Poulter are sort of the inside track in it. Like is it is is Rose going to make that? I haven't paid enough attention, I think, to the Europe. I think Norin, right? Like, is, I was going to say, I, I had assumed it would default to Rose just because Norin hasn't beaten down the door enough to get by him. And I think they can, are just kind of hopeful that he'll, he'll channel something into uh into another Ryder Cup? I don't know. I, I would be surprised if it was Norin. I mean, it's, I think Rose fits the profile of the golf course a little bit better than Norin would. No? Yeah, that's true. That's true. No, you're right. I like that we can get past – we're past the Norin bits at this point. Like, we we don't have to acknowledge my stance on Norin any longer because I've been, I've been so validated. <laughs> the manipulator. This is sort of my point, uh, KVV, is, like, they don't have – like, you know, after we all, I, we, I'm sure we predicted a total of like 16 majors for Thomas Peters after the 2016 Ryder Cup. Like they, like what were, who's their Scotty Scheffler, you know, like they, they don't, they're just, they're kind of like hung up between like Bob McIntyre. Okay. That's fine. But like, there, there's just, I don't see what the transition is beyond like Hovland, you know? And, and, and so uh, I'm excited to see guys like I, I. I think it's really meaningful that Shane Lowry's playing. Fleetwood's super fun at Ryder Cups, but I. I, I don't. I, they they just don't have a lot of guys at the bottom there that it's like okay we're gonna kind of turn this over to our next group and they're gonna they're gonna take the torch and and push it forward I, and at some point you get caught with that and and you know for the U.S.'s sake I, I hope it happens this year. Molinari's not going to be a member of the team, right? Like he's no. been so kind of average, right? That no, he's not even in the conversation, which is wild to think that a guy went five and zero last time and was like the ultimate pairing is not going to be a part of this Ryder Cup team. Yeah, and on, on the Westwood front, him being an automatic qualifier, like Richard Bland is outgaining him in strokes gained over the last three months. Like, <laughs> it's not. Uh, it, it's it's again. It's it's on paper. It doesn't make sense, and it doesn't mean it's not going to go their way. It really doesn't. We've seen that movie enough times. Oh, 100. Do you have I the- would just say, as I kind of wrap here, though, you, you guys, please keep talking. But I don't think I can pick the Americans until they prove it to me. Like, I have picked the Americans, yeah. like, you know, four times in a row and have gone one for three in that sense. And but- so, like, I, I just feel like I ought to have learned my lesson by now and that Europe ought to be favored, in, you know, in my mind, at least, until they, they collapse. And I just don't know that it's going to To that happen. point, though, and to Kyle's point earlier, like, 2012 was such a wildly insane like out of body and not because of captaincy or not because of anything other than like just some kind of crappy play on Sunday that you know otherwise we'd be looking at just a true home and home flip-flop for the last 13 years 
And, like, I don't know if the U.S. team gets enough credit for 2016. They, they totally waxed them. They executed the game plan to perfection, threw a ton of talent out there. They threw some bombers. They mowed the rough down. They put the tees back, put the pins in easy spots, and it was not close. So I, I think they deserve some credit. Like, 2018 was such an unmitigated disaster that it's easy to keep that very fresh in their minds. But their captain's picks went 2-10, and 10, and uh, it was just a golf course they were totally unprepared to play, and I don't think that's going to be the case this time around. So – I said famously in 2016, I said the U.S. is going to win four of the next five, which would involve them winning the next three and two of those being home. I, 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 I'm not willing to sit here and say like we're locks to win the next three, of course, but I, I don't love where we're sitting on that. But like as we're talking about like the next generation of upcoming European players, look at all the new blood on the U.S. team and the, the fact that we don't have a ton of that new blood on the European team. I think that projects out well um, for the U.S. in the next decade, but Right now, we're focused on the, tax, the task at hand. We're on to whistling straight. <laughs> Gentlemen, I have to depart, but I just want you to promise that if Europe does pull off the upset and uh, there's a big champagne celebration afterwards, that you will get Rory to yes. FaceTime me at my wedding Done. reception. That will happen. And talk a bunch <laughs> of shit, okay? So I, that, would, that would be the ultimate wedding gift that you could give me. So. Uh, that would do, definitely any, happen. Any predictions from Mr. Player? I, everyone yells at me when I have you on and don't get a player impersonation. So any predictions from, from Mr. Player on this upcoming Ryder Cup? <laughs> My prediction is it is an absolute disgrace that South Africa was not ever included in continental Europe. We all know that spiritually South Africa is just as much a part of Europe as any nation. Can you imagine a nation like Poland being a part of Europe for the Ryder Cup purposes but not South Africa? Absurd. Ernie Earls and I were denied the chance to win multiple Ryder Cups. And I will never forgive Jack Nicklaus, who was a dear friend, for not advocating harder for continental Europe to include former British colonies like South Africa. Rory Sabatini's could have been, could have been involved in this one. He could have qualified for it. You need to... That is also correct, but he left us, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's the same thing. I, I'm a very torn. He's a nice young man, but I hope, you know... I hope he's, he's just rot in Bratislava because <laughs> cannot abide a, country, a man turning his back on his country. I'm going to apologize in advance for the lack of trees you're going to see out at Whistling Straits, Mr. Player. But uh... <laughs> oh, Well, I, I, there's still time to plant some, Solly. If I was Steve Stricker, I would plant a giant tree right in the middle of the 16. I know it's a, it's a par three that's over the ocean, but... The, a, if you had to imagine if you had to shape it around the tree there, Sully. It would be unbelievable. Not only is it not a part three, it's also not on the ocean. That's fantastic. Thank you for, for adding that, Mr. Player. What? <laughs> Oceans, lakes, it's all semantics, isn't it? Thank you for joining us, sir. And uh, we will see you very soon. And congratulations on the upcoming nuptials. So, oh, he gets it every time, every time. Um, all right. You want to get to a little questions or what, what, what do we burn up? What have we not yep. got to yet? No, I, I think we got to everything I wrote down. I, I don't know how to follow that up. That's, I know. That's, um, I had a Marcel Seam reference running, written down. I don't really know why. Because <laughs> you need, like, it, it kind of like you need that guy coming off the bench to grab rebounds and, and uh, make the well, outlet pass. Well, no, it was, it, I, I was, I had it written down because I, I referenced the reason, like, some of the stuff we talked about earlier, like the individuality of the U.S. team leading to their demise at times. It's why a team like Spain can beat the U.S. in, in Olympic basketball. And so I just threw Marcel Seam's name in there. Uh, I, I, I have no idea why. But that's like one of the only things that, that I wrote down that we didn't get to, I think. Well, let's so, get to it. we got a couple um, questions. Yeah, let's do, yeah. Let's, 
Fancy Feet Ford, do you think Stricker has the guts? And we may have gotten to some of these, you know, tangentially throughout, but do you think Stricker has the guts to make a tough decision if things don't go our way day one, i.e. sitting a guy, breaking up a pod, et cetera? He feels very Pat Hurst, stick with the plan if, if it's not going well. Yeah, I, there's, such a, there's such a delicate balance between uh, stick with the plan and, and blow everything up, right? Because it's just so easy in retrospect to say you should have done the other. It, it's easy but to like, panic. Like, a plan is a plan for a reason. Yeah. Yeah, Tom Watson, like, had the guts to make the right decisions. And, like, well, how did that turn <laughs> out? So I, I, I don't give a ton of credence to – I think that – I think you mostly stick with the plan and, and just keep the guys that are hot playing. Like, it's not, it's not like, that hard – not to go fill, but it's not that hard of a formula. Right. No, I think they're, the reason is you come up with a plan is so people know what to expect, right? And Hunter Mayhan doesn't go have to test Jim Furyk's golf ball on the range in between two sessions because yep. uh, you decided to throw those two together. So I, I'm team plan. Well, and, and Stricker said that today. He was like, look, I am all about clear communication. And Spieth kind of backed him up. He's like, he kind of just says what he means and, and, and you go from there. And so I thought that was actually – because I, I think that everybody's like, oh, we need a hard ass as, as, the, as the captain. It's like, well, we had that in 2014, <laughs> that and it didn't go very well. But none of us were consulted <laughs> so I, on I any think, decisions. I don't think that's the issue. I think it's like, I think it's buy-in and good communication. And communication of like, hey, here's the contingency plan. Here, here's like the options. Here's the range of what we may or may not do. And we'll kind of operate within that. And that's what you should expect. And then if you if you go outside of it, that's on you as the captain. You shouldn't be. You should make a plan and stay within it, and not and have contingencies, but not stray way outside of it like Tom Watson did. Doctor David Blair, DC. What are the sickest things and setup U.S. can do to help them win? Graded mowing in the rough with shortest closer to the shortest closer to the hole. Random fairway tree. <laughs> hiring an anti goon squad for Bryson Hecklers, knowing his dojo is papier mache. Is that paper mache? I don't know what he was going for there. <laughs> I think it's. I think it is. I think just center pins, you know, all 18 holes, the anti-rose. And for those that, like, have – I can't tell what's a bit and what's not in these days anymore in terms of, you know, guys wanting Nah and wanting Kisner. I would highly encourage you uh, – I guess it's going to be extremely evident to anyone there in person walking the golf holes as to why distance is going to be extremely important, right? And at Inverness this past week at Solheim, like, it was not. Like, it was not a – it was a long golf course, but it played fast and firm. I'm not expecting Whistling to play super fast and firm. I don't think they want it to. It is going to be, like, very PGA Tour-like. And the reason why there's a ton of U.S. players at the top of the world rankings and top of the FedEx Cup and stuff like that is their games are very PGA Tour-designed. And, listen, Roms and Rory's and Hovland's are too, but it just the, the depth is better on the U.S. side for that kind of setup and format. Yeah, totally. And, and that's what, like, they literally are picking these courses and setting them up for that reason. So why would they not make the captain's picks to, to fit that profile? I mean, that's like... You did it from the beginning. You might you might as well finish off your team yeah. by by adding to adding to it guys that fit that as well. And then along the same lines, Graham R underscore nine. When will they limit the captain's ability to manipulate the course? Yeah, I I hate it. I, I you after know, this one. And, after this one, we'll do does, it. <laughs> yes, that's what I meant. How does the Solheim Cup do it? it because it didn't seem like they no. said it. At, the captain had almost no say in it, right? Because we played with Pat Hurst two months before, and she's like, yeah, we're going to set it up for birdies. You know, we want to get the crowd into it. Let me tell you, they did not set it up for birdies at all. She had almost no say in it. I mean, it's the LPGA tour that, 
you know, is in charge of the pins and the tees and all that, and they put them in absolutely absurd spots, which I think sets up for a great competition. Like, I don't think I, – I yeah. think it is steered way too hard in – like if we're, you know, again, we're a Sunday comeback away from like a lot of the, most of these last four Ryder Cups, five Ryder Cups being potential blowouts. Right. And 2010 at Celtic Manor was not a crazy setup either way. And it was a really good Ryder Cup. I didn't think 2008 was a crazy setup either. A little bit like they're cutting tree limbs down for JB Holmes and stuff like that. But <laughs> yeah, like it, that was when Zinger like really started, you know, taking leadership in terms of you know, pushing things more towards the absurd of favoring your team. And I just, I don't understand that. There's enough home field advantage with everyone cheering for you that a, something that promotes a closer cup is going to be better for the, the event as a whole. Yeah, I agree. I think to do that, you almost have to cede control to like a third party from... So who goes last then? Who gets the last setup as the, well, as the captain, right? That's the hard part, right? Well, and, and you would almost have to, like, I was thinking, oh, well, the PGA of America could do it. Well, they obviously can't because Kerry Haig, I, th I think PGA championships are set up great. Like, I thought Kiowa was, the setup was awesome this year, you know, and, and they got wind and that helped and whatever. But y it would be hard to, like, outsource it to a, to an American entity or to a European entity. You'd almost have to do it to, maybe Gary Player should set him up. <laughs> maybe we should, maybe, maybe KVV should set it up as Gary Player. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. If doing it on either end of the extreme is not... Not great. Um, it's, the U.S. is if the U.S. loses this one, it is going to be the the takes the likes of which we've never even heard before. The, like the meltdown is going to be uncontrolled. It's going to be Chernobyl times twenty five. I'd say. Yeah, it's very it's a very existential Ryder Cup for the U.S. because for all the reasons that we've talked about, and you throw in the Bryson Brooks stuff and. You throw in like Phil and Tiger not being there, and you and and it's it it just like if they lose this one, it is, I I don't know what they do. And again, maybe you and I care more about this than like anybody involved in it, but it <laughs> it feels like a very like existential yeah. issue for the U.S. at the Ryder Cup if they lose this one. I wrote that down. I I, I the it they. There should just be very 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 few scenarios in which they go out and lose this Ryder Cup. And the odds don't tell that story too greatly. It was they were minus one ninety as of this morning. The Europeans plus two hundred, according, of course, to the DraftKings sportsbook, which is like I don't know. That looks like a pretty heavy favorite, but that's like Europe's two to one to win, thirty three percent chance with those odds. Like that's not that's like a, that's like Joey Votto getting a base hit. Like that's not an outrageous. Those aren't outrageous odds at all. I mean, I was getting ready to say I'm a little surprised that they're not bigger favorites, but I think there is true built in like. European Ryder Cup history in those odds for one of the first times I can remember. Usually yeah. it's like this is when the odds kind of get a little bit out of control, and uh, I feel like they're, they don't accurately refl reflect the talent gap but do accurately reflect uh, how this thing always plays out. That's uh, two straight podcasts we've done with a former Reds baseball player what reference. Was the last one, Eddie Tobinsey. We, we need to, Eddie Tobinsey, yeah. It's great. But Joey Vaughn is a, a, a current Red working true, on uh, cementing a Hall of Fame career, so you can take that back at all. But uh, McGowan27 asks, I get this one kind of a lot, does this team have any personality? Great golfers, nails, but does it translate to this type of event? I think we've answered that in, in some ways, but how important is personality? I think that – if I can go ahead and answer it a little bit, I think that's kind of conflating the role of the personalities within a team structure. Uh, explain like, that. You don't need to be a passionate, like, pump-up-the-crowd guy. I don't think that is, like, what makes a great Ryder Cupper, right? I think it is 
what we talked about in the beginning of like ability to buy into a team and sacrifice yourself to the team more so than be like a showman and show a lot of personality. I feel like that's more important. You know, the team part of that element is more important than just like having a ton of personality. Does that make sense? Yes. I think Are you it sure does. it does? Because you seem suspect. Like <laughs> no, I, I, think, I think about somebody like a Harris English who, to me, doesn't have a ton of, like, external personality. Like, he's not going to go out and, you know, get up in the stands and be singing with the, the everybody on the first tee. But I think that he... I think he has the right kind of personality for the team. Yeah. Like, the way that Steve Stricker talked about the guys that he chose, like it became very clear that the guys that were already on the team said, Hey, we want Scheffler burger and Harris English, right? Like he, it, it, I mean, he might've asked other people and he might've technically had the final call, but if you read between the lines on his transcript, it was, it was JT and Spieth and whoever else, Morikawa, whoever else he asked saying, Hey, those are the three guys we want because those are our guys. And I think that is, and maybe that's not what you're saying personality-wise, but I think that's a really meaningful 100%. thing. And I think that hopefully if you can get past some of the Brooks and Bryson stuff as a team, which I don't know if you can, but if you can, I think there's a galvanizing factor there that will help the U.S. Yeah, I think it also is worth noting that uh, you know there were players, player, players on the team, or there was communication to the captains as well that like this read thing ain't it. We, we're, we're not interested in doing the read thing. Yeah. And – you know, there's enough reasons as to why health, you know, e either one of these two things is true. Patrick Reed almost died recently uh, within the last month, or he's either lying about possibly almost dying. Uh, either one of those things is extremely pro problematic when it comes to one, being a part of a team room and two, performing under the greatest possible pressure you could have in your sport. There was a sense you leading up like over the, well, you and I have been talking about the Ryder Cup for the last 12, but 18 months, but over the last six months, when people really started talking about it, like the people that you would hear talk were like, oh, got to have Reed, Captain America, got to have him. And, and I feel like you and I were the only ones that were like, did you, you remember this? see what happened in Paris? <laughs> like he lit a flame and threw it on a, on a can of, on a, on a, threw a you know, a building doused in gasoline. <laughs> threw a Molotov cocktail in the room left, and ran out the door. I, I feel like I was, like, not remembering things correctly. And so I went back and read some of the quotes, and it's just, you know, not to go too deep into my own personal history. It was very jarring to read. Uh, <laughs> that was a reference to the, to the uh, Port Rush Memphis <laughs> tweet. But uh, it was very jarring to read some of the stuff that he said about Spieth, about Furyk, about Tiger, about all these guys. It's just stuff like – and he was like, oh, well, Phil says it, and and uh, he gets away with it. It's like, yeah, because he's got literally 25 years of history of, of like, built up. Like, he's got capital to spend. You do not. And you tried to spend it, and it didn't work, and that's why you're not on the team. I need to hear – I'm trying to find it in a pinch because, like – I, I, I remember this actually happening, but I think it is so beyond belief that I need to almost read it like once a month to remember that it is real and not part of this like sometimes fictitious bits that we come up with. And that Patrick Reed <laughs> said that Tiger apologized to him about how Tiger yeah. played after Reed shot like 84 in four ball, which is... He went a step further. He said, uh, I explained to him, well... In team golf, like you, you, you don't need to, you don't have to apologize. We're a team and we work together. He was like explaining to Tiger how, how match play team golf works. It was unreal. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's just like, 
again, in an era that, you know, the, the, the talent for the U.S., as we have documented, is so deep. Like, there's no reason to throw a huge another personality curveball onto this team. Like, we're full up on personality. Yeah, not to mention he was, what, two and five in the last two team events? If you look at Ryder Cup and President's Cup, he's not been good. No. Two, five, and one, something and like that. And I think, that. yeah, there was a case to be made if he's, like – you know, beaten down the door with his play this season, which I know he won the Farmers, but ever since then he hasn't really done much of note. I mean, he's been fine, but again, just not enough not enough reason to to bring it back into the team room. Let's talk a little bit more about the Europeans, and then we can uh, we can put a wrap on this because we haven't really focused on that too too greatly. I know we talked about Rom some, but a couple guys we haven't talked a lot about: Tyrrell Hatton, Tommy Fleetwood. Um, haven't really been a big part of any major storylines over the past several months in, in, in professional golf. I'm looking at their strokes gained over the last three months, last six months, last year. It's a bit uninspiring. It's, it's, uh, it's a lot of guys that, you know, if you, if you combine the two stat charts, you know, between uh, the Team Europe and the, and the U.S., guess how many of the top seven guys in strokes gained over the last three months are in the – guess how many are on the U.S. side? Uh, I, think it's, I think it's six. I think it's Rahm and six – and I think it's – 15 of the top 18 are American. I think it's only Rom Hovland and Paul Casey that are in the top 18. Yep. Is that right? It's also right. And it also means nothing. Uh, of course, when they go to put balls in the air, right? I mean, <laughs> as we've, as has been pointed out and, and, and evidence many, many times, but it's just, I, I'm still stuck wondering like how many times you can go in with the odds against you and, and flip this thing on us. I put out that stat on Twitter yesterday and, and people responded like, Oh, well, what about points gained? And it's like, well, look, man, like, I don't like what, what does that this mean? Is, this is the data I have to work with. What do you want me to say? Yeah, I, I have no idea what that means. And I think that, like, look, like, I think what has been said, the narrative, and I've said this at times as well, is, oh, well, the U.S. is just going to keep, they're trying to do the same thing again, trying to do the same thing again, which is somewhat true. But I, I do, I keep going back to, like, man, I feel like there's there's a shift in this team. It's younger it's a bunch of rookies. It's guys that haven't endured 20 years or the last nine Ryder Cups of this stuff. And it's JT and Spieth as the leaders instead of Tiger and Phil. I like Tiger and Phil. I think they've been, I mean, you and I probably wouldn't have these jobs if not for Tiger and Phil, right? But in terms of the Ryder Cup, I mean, seriously, in terms of the Ryder Cup, I just, I feel like that shift combined with what we always say about like the U.S. is better, the U.S. is better, the U.S. is better is really meaningful. Now, does that mean that Bryson and Brooks are not going to go off the rails and just, just derail this whole thing? No. Does that mean DJ is not going to play bad in the first match and then pout and go 0-3 and the U.S. lose? No. Those things still could happen, but I think the U.S. is set up better this year than they have been, even in the, even going back to like I don't know, 2008. I, I really do because of those small shifts in leadership and also team makeup. And that's where like the biggest question mark for me is like we've said in the very beginning, just the buy-in, right? It's who's going to buy in, who's going to, who is going to be the best possible. Are they going to cohere, like exist as a team? And I, I never thought that mattered more. Uh, you know, like I, like I said in the beginning of just really understanding what that means is, uh, is changed my perspective on it. I'm not saying they can't do it. I think they can, I think it's, um, you know, a lot of the cases being built for some of the players that weren't picked, that weren't course fits, I don't think would really would have helped them on the team bonding phase. Like, sure, Kisner says all the right things and is like, you know, it, so, some would call it pandering, you know, with some of the things he says of, oh, we just got to go drink beer and whatnot. It's like, well, that doesn't, 
that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to, you know, help the team perform better when it comes to this thing. Um, so that stuff comes from the top, right? Like that, you're not picking, you're not picking captain's picks so that they can like lead the, you know, team drills or whatever. Like that's from JT. That's from speed. Do you, do you think that JT and speed, like, do you think guys buy into them? Like if, cause I, I remember Phil, I think this was at Hazeltine actually, Phil said, hey, Spieth is like, he's the future of American team golf. And it felt like a, it felt like a kind of a meaningful thing, like him, him kind of passing that torch a little bit. Do you think other guys in that room, do you think a Morikawa, a Cantlay, a Scheffler, a Xander, look at those two guys and are willing to follow them? My gut instincts is say no. Uh, again, that goes back to just the, the American professional golfer standard is – I think these guys are hyper competitive and don't view themselves as teammates. They view themselves as, you know, potential adversaries or like guys they compare themselves to more than they do like buy into this whole this whole kind of thing, right? I think their egos are like almost want to it could work to their benefit more of like, "Oh, I want to go Speed is going to go 3 and 1." Well, shit, I'm going to go 4 and 1. Like I, I need to, I want to beat that guy. I want to be the best player on this team right more than I want this team to win does that make sense yeah do you think they do it on the euro side do you think guys that are do you think the Weisbergers and Chris Woods of the world are are, are looking at Rory and Rom and saying I'm gonna I'm gonna follow yes, them I do I do I but I think that's a different a huge difference in talent right I mean I, I think the you know the the Harris English and the you know the you know Xanders and whatnot those guys like those guys compete very well with the JTs and Speeths on a regular basis right it's not like it's not a, you know, yeah, the resumes are different, but it's not the same gap as like a, a, a Wiesberger versus Rory. You know what I mean? Yeah, and I think that gets it like like knowing your role and playing it well. Cantlay has to walk in the room, even though he just won the FedEx Cup. He's got a ton of money, all this stuff, and know like, hey, JT's playing five matches and I'm not. But Cantlay might. He might, yeah. Well, who who knows? Yeah, I, I, that's that's a bad example, but like – I think what I'm saying is I think the Euro side, like they, they all know their roles really well. They know that Rory's the guy, they know that Rom's the guy and they are so willing to, to lay down their preferences and to, to, to take on humility and be like, I'm just like the, 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 uh, Graham McDowell yep. thing that takes a ton of humility. Yep. Right. It does. And, and I, and, and I think that I, and that's what I mean by following JT and Spieth. I don't mean like you got to yeah. sidle up to him and be like, oh, how do I play this hole? I mean like, okay, if those are going to be the two guys and whoever it ends up being, maybe it's Morikawa, I don't know, then I'm going to play this role and I'm going to go out and do it the best I can. And if and if I get it done, great. And if not, that's okay. But this is what I'm doing. you know. And I, I think that's essentially what we've been saying throughout this whole podcast of the difference between the European side and the Americans. Oh man, I've I've gotten you know it, you know it's Ryder Cup time when I've I've gotten too high on the U.S. <laughs> I do it right before right before every single one I get too high on it, and uh, I think today has successfully done that. I have, I've learned nothing over the last several years. Who, who would you, <laughs> who would you uh, who would you replace Brooks with if he's out? I'm not prepared to answer that because I've it's been so crystal clear for me who the six picks should be that. Uh, I've, I've, in my head, I've downplayed number 13 on the list, you know, pretty strongly. I think if it was me picking, I think you'd have to talk me out of Sam Burns. You know, I think it'd be, again, if we're kind of doing this, this, you know, potential up and coming player, like a, like we have so many known quantities, like the, 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 the likelihood that Webb is going to come onto this team and like knock, blow the doors off is so low that 
like I'd rather go with some upside, right? Play Burns in a match. If he plays poorly in his match, then we'll you know you wait till singles, right? You you kind of get one match to try to prove yourself. If you play well, we'll send you back out for a second match. Uh, if not, you'll play singles, and that's that's the role you got to play on your team. I think that's not unreasonable ask of the thirteenth man. So, you? I like that. I, I either Burns or Webb. I, I I think you just taught me into Burns. I think I, I think I, that it fits with what it seems like Stricker is trying to do. I I, I think that they've got enough of the veteran guys. And I think if you have the right veteran guys, you can't have enough rookie up and comer future stars like that. Just, it just makes a ton of sense in this type of, this type of, uh, and on a more neutral golf course, Kevin Na would be the answer. Like Kevin Na's numbers the last three months are legit. Like he's played extremely, extremely good golf. And I mean, I think he's the, the fifth best American player over the last three months, um, over, over strokes game, but the course matters that much to me. It really does. And, I know a lot of people don't agree with that and, and want to discount it, but I, I think this is a truly unique one. And uh, I will put my hand up at the end of all of this, and if the course ends up not playing as much of a role as I think, I will say I was dead wrong, but I am uh, digging my feet in on that one, that's for sure. So what's your what's your plan for viewing? I mean, I've honestly kind of concocted this a lot of different ways in my mind of like what I want to do. It's hard, to, it's hard on the ground at team events to like – pick the right match and keep up with what's going on in the rest of them and be able to report back and talk about at the end of the day. What's your plan? Yeah, I'm, so I'm getting there on Wednesday, I think Wednesday morning or Wednesday afternoon. And, uh, I just get out to the course Wednesday or probably not till Thursday, I guess. And then I, I, I don't know it. I'll probably just, Whatever you do, I'll, I'll probably we'll probably just we go do that hang. thing where we all I mean, follow the same we had matches. So many, and- <laughs> well, we we had so many like just hilarious like you uh, walking around with like following Poulter around in 2016, and then uh, and then Rory uh, bowing it, you know, just all these different things that we got to experience together that was just so much fun that superseded anything we could have like experienced, you know, d- seen on our own that was maybe. 10% better or whatever. So I don't know. I mean, I'm going to be out on the course as, as much as humanly possible. It's just, it's like that at that event, being inside the ropes makes more of a difference than any other event in the world because the, 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 everybody's so compacted. You just, I mean, you went to Medina outside the ropes, right? And it's just so difficult to be there and to see anything. If you want to be a part of an awesome environment, like you can totally go and do that and hang out and watch on the Jumbotron and wait for groups to come through and scream your head off. If you are a golf nut and want to see a lot of golf, the Ryder cup is the hardest. Like you it's, it's impossible. There's just not enough golf being played out there. Totally that in Augusta, but it's also, I mean, people ask, my friends ask me all the time, like, what do you, what do you enjoy going to the most? And unequivocally. Yep. Ryder cup. I mean, it's, it's really, I mean, I, I love the Masters. I love, the U.S. Open's great. PGA, the Ryder Cup is it's it is the best. And maybe it's because I, I was telling my wife the other day, I was like, I've only I've only been to one Ryder Cup. I've been doing this for eight years, and I've only been to one, and that was 2016, 2016 Hazeltine. I was thinking today before we got on just how much life happens between the last. I mean, it's like it's like the Olympics, right? Like four years passes, and you're like, man, that was that was so much life that happened, and to think about you know, where we were, what we were all doing and where we were all at five years ago, even more time this time around, uh, is, is pretty crazy. So I'm, I'm looking forward to just reconvening and, uh, it won't, you're right. Like it, it'll never be like 2016 again. Um, and it gets at the Colin Morikawa conversation that we had last time of like 
the loss of innocence, it's, it's never as much fun as when it's like your first or second or third year doing it. But I think we can get pretty close. Well, I don't know. I, I, as exhausting as like following PGA Tour golf much more religiously has been, this could be quite a reprieve in the same way of like yeah. just a, an event truly unlike anything else in golf. And gosh, if you can't tell, we had such a blast at the Solheim Cup. It got me in such a mood for this. And uh, I can't wait to see how that event, you know, unfolds over the next several decades and years and whatnot. And uh, gosh, it, it there's a lot of potential there, and it's just got me. It's got me like scared of the Ryder Cup. Like Ryder Cup is so big, it's just so yeah. many people. It's just the crowd is going to be ridiculous, and there's going to be a lot of dumb stuff said. And I'm not looking forward to that part of it. But gosh, am I looking forward to that uh, that first tee on uh, on on Friday morning? So, oh, it's the best. It's it is the best thing that we I I think that we get to do in person. So 100. I can't wait. Um. Awesome. This was a lot of fun, and, and I'm sure we'll have a ton more fun there uh, here in two weeks. All right. We'll do another two more hours tomorrow and every day leading up <laughs> to the Ryder Cup. So we got to start our 20, 2024 uh, Ryder Cup pod. <laughs> <laughs> Porter, thank you as always for joining. This was a treat. Can't wait to get up to whistling and, uh, and to you know, flip-flop on who we think is going to win every day for the next couple of weeks. So thank you, buddy. We'll see you there. Cheers. Be the right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. Expect.